by kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? There, Morris Wisniewski speaking. Welcome, finally, after much technical difficulties, uh, to episode 50 of Love That Album. So this show takes on um, mythic proportions for a whole bunch yes. of reasons. Um, thank you, Tim. Wait till you're introduced. Um, and <laughs> we, this episode 50 is a shooting the shit episode beneath the planet of shooting the shit, we're going to call it. Um, I am really very, very happy to be doing uh, episode 50 with four fellow music lovers um, introducing from left to right as I see them on my Skype screen from Ann Arbor, the birthday boy, Eric Reanimator. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. Uh, uh, to his right on my Skype screen. Uh, from Sin City, a.k.a. Steak and Kidney, a.k.a. Sydney, Mr. John, who the fuck is Wilco, Stirrett. Good evening, everybody. Happy birthday, Eric. And thank you, thank you. Morris, congratulations. Um, it's, you're like a cricketer on the precipice of scoring a half century. And, and who You've had some... Yeah, but for a while I thought I'd never quite make it. I thought it was going to be yeah. that on 49. Um and to John's right, sitting in the bar in Adelaide, joining me for the first time on Shooting the Shit, but having been on a multitude of prior episodes, Mr. Michael Persh. Good evening, Michael. Hey, bro. How you doing? And I'm sitting in the bar with no beer. Tim, Tim it's your job to do it for me, dude. <laughs> well, <I'm getting laughs> and, and, <laughs> Happy birthday, Eric, too. And, and, thank you. And on his right, the final member of tonight's Shooting the Shit crew, Mr. Tim Ghetto Tim. I'll have to ask you the origin of that. Tim Merrill. Good evening, Tim. Hey, hey. So, 50 kicks at the can, man. You're just about to get it right. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, tonight's the night, you know. It, I just want to say uh, happy birthday, Eric. All the best. And uh, welcome you. to the Old Farts Club. And uh, um, Morris, this is a real uh, honor and a pleasure, man. And, you know, it's amazing how when you do something you really love how it just kind of floats by it, it just burns by and i know how how hard it is for you to put this together and all the effort that you uh, take and the love that you put in editing after it's all said and done man but when you really love what you do and i know you do it just burns by and it's amazing that you've already done this is the big 5-0 so congratulations are in order thank you very very much really appreciate it but truth be known that the strength is doing this show is involved in conversations with fellow music nuts and it's the four of you plus a whole host of other wonderful uh, music fans, other podcasters, friends, uh, just people who love to talk about favourite albums or music in general 
that have uh, made this really worthwhile. I, th I think probably two of the weakest episodes of the show were the ones that I did by myself just because I couldn't find someone interested enough to talk about um, those couple of albums. So um, really, well, I, what, I, like I, I thrive on doing. I thrive on doing this um, uh, as conversation with uh, with other people like yourselves. I'd like to correct you there for a minute. I think the weakest episodes that you've ever done don't exist because there hasn't been a weakest episode. That's for sure. Excuse me while I go in. And Morris, those two episodes Blush. you did, those two Leo Sayer albums were well worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, John, you make me feel like dancing. Uh, so, Morris, you sat there by yourself and you basically said, When I need love, hold down my hand. <laughs> So, hang on. You could have got the tell, other person that bought the album, Leo Sayer's mum on. <laughs> Isn't Leo Sayer a resident of Sydney nowadays? Yes. So do you ever see I think we, we tried to um, we tried to offload him down to Melbourne, but he seems to um, he's hanging in here. Yes. Thank goodness for that. He came to Sydney via um, Ann Arbor via Korea. <laughs> <laughs> probably there was there was probably some lame stuff going on around here at one point in time. Yeah, there is now, Eric, but yeah. Him uh, escorted him to the to the respective airports. Yeah, took him out to Detroit Metro. I can plane. I can just picture it in my mind. There's a, this little like boarded up wooden crate, and it says, "You know, danger contents inside. Do not shake." You know, it's like, <laughs> "What do you got in there, man?" It's like steel sear. Whoa! <laughs> So do you imagine that when he, uh, he when he stopped our thesis uh, on his um, much heralded box set? <laughs> so, so hang on, tell me, Eric, do you think that when he uh, made a stop through Ann Arbor that he uh, he hung around with with Iggy? No, no, no. He was probably uh, late, like, what late seventies, like the disco era. Yeah, either that or when uh, when when all the <clears throat> when when all the uh, the the ex hippies were uh, buying up property and. Uh, Starting, you know, <laughs> Hang on, we, we starting their massive sellout of this we town. Go uh, this is the rejigged version of episode fifty. We promised that we weren't right. going to be talking about hippies uh, and, and the, the. We're going to be talking about hippies right. today, but just in a different way. Yeah, you know, right. I was going to say the one thing that it really you kind of struck a struck a memory in my mind in the the cheese grater I call a brain that I remember being a kid. And going like my grandparents were uh, at a, they had a summer camping uh, vacation spot where they had a trailer, and they had kind of a recreation area with pinball machines. Right. And I remember being a kid sitting there putting a nickel or ten cents into a pinball machine and listening to uh, what was that song? Uh, the show must go on. Leo Leo Sayer singing. Uh, that circus song. What was that? Uh, the show show must go on, or you, you evidently know more of the Leo Sayer back. I don't know, but I just remember that song, man. It just it just kind of hit me, and I was like, wait a minute, yeah. Tim, we we know that song, but we're not game to admit it on air. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I I can safely say I know the name, but not the music. So the show must go on, or something like that. I don't know. Wasn't that a Seekers song, Michael? Well, I'm just, I've, I've had the pleasure, thank you very much, of having Leo Sayer as a guest on my show, and he was a very funny guy, so right, you can, no, you can no bag on Leo my mate Leo, you can bag my mate Leo all you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we, 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 
can't doubt his longevity. Lovely, lovely. We could talk so smack lovely. about the Eagles if you want. That's that's doable. Sorry. I said we could talk smack about the Eagles if you want. That's doable. Oh, you're a Don Henley, or, man, aren't you? Right. I am, but uh, th I'll be the first to say that there's plenty of crap in that catalog. Hey, man, I just got two words. Joe fucking Walsh, man. He's the only one that matters. Every, all the rest of them can go to hell as far as I'm concerned, man. But Joe Walsh is cool, man. Everything that he recorded with the James Gang and all the rest, you know. You know I, he's I, I only the main Eagles listenable. That was it. I, I recently read a, uh, a an opinion piece that basically said the true problem with the Eagles is Glenn Fry, and there's your Ann Arbor connection because he got to start with uh, Bob Seger. Um, that Glenn Fry is a massive asshole and just was in it for the money, and that everybody else ha had some kind of artistic merit and talent along the way, and they got caught up in the and then the machine. Mm. And actually, I did watch that uh, documentary about the Eagles that came out like last year recently. And it kind of, kind of didn't really change my opinion about them because I, honestly, was never, never the biggest hater. But you know, it kind of put a lot of what, what, what the hate for them comes from in perspective. So, yeah. No, uh, I don't have their box set either. So right. Okay. <laughs> All right. So you know what's? I was going to say. So we've been passing around this this phrase <sighs> box set. And for you listeners out there, you're probably thinking, why have we brought this up so many times? Well, that's because uh, Eric, who have we mentioned, it's his birthday today, um, has uh, come up with a suggestion that the focus for this episode of Shooting the Shit should be to talk about our favourite box sets. And I thought that that was an absolutely terrific idea because you know, normally the focus of the show in the regular episodes is to talk about you know, a single album and yet there are so many great anthologies there and the, the nature of box sets means that you've got you know, anthologies of a genre anthologies of a location anthologies of one artist and it, it really did seem like a terrific forum to um, maybe bring to your attention some obscure box sets or maybe celebrate some well-loved ones uh, and so that's going to be for the main part the focus of uh, this episode of Love That Album, um, or aka Beneath the Planet of Shooting the Shit. So, um, how shall we do this? Will we sort of like you know, each one at a time talk about all our nominated box sets or go in a round table one each? What would you guys prefer? I think one each to keep us, um, keep yeah. us away. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. Can I, can um, I just suggest that we start off with uh, just kind of talking about, about the, the box set in yeah. general? Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons I did suggest this is I feel like we're at a, at a moment where the box set is basically uh, going away. Mm. I think that with yeah. digital with with digital distribution and with uh, the return of vinyl, our vinyl box mm. sets that are now oh, yeah. starting to appear. I think we, I think we truly are seeing uh, the box mm. set as we as we knew it going away. But there's a, some interesting things going on. For instance, we're seeing a lot of uh, you know the complete collection of artists on, say, a certain label. For instance, right. there's the the 46 volume or 64 CD volume of Johnny Cash at Columbia Records, mm. right. or the complete Blue Oyster Cult, or the complete Roxy yeah. Music out there. Mm -hmm. Right. I was going to say too that the way I look at box sets is I kind of look at them from two standards. Uh, I look at box sets first from replayability. I mean, mm -hmm. those, those kind of box sets that 
you're always going to kind of go back to and just keep playing the stuff over and over and over and over and how well, you know, how many times you go back to the well, so to speak. And the other standard that I kind of look at box sets by is uh, the content. You know, you get those box sets that you're only going to play once, but you buy them because it comes with the book and it comes with the DVD and it comes with everything else and the packaging yep. is just immaculate and right. it's something you only want to play once because you're afraid to touch the thing for fear that it's going to fall to pieces right you know yep, yep, yep. and uh so i say that that's that's my two kind of gold standards for you know box sets is is whether or not you know you get the box set that you're going to play the shit out of or you're going to get the box set that you're just going to put on the shelf and look at right, right. and also i think probably what we might cover if we get a chance is when did the box set and you know i've got only my opinion I, and i guess i'd um be interested in what you guys feel there was a point where the box set became a commercially viable entity right and, and I, yeah. I feel there was a couple of key box sets well i, I think i know you, i think i know one of those box sets that you'd be liable to mention because it's part of our connection isn't it john you'd be referring right. to uh well no, spring, no not, not springsteen life no not at all no i've got it i've got two other box sets uh, by one artist that I think may have may have heralded in the era where a box set actually sold in reasonable numbers. Right. There's something I wanted to put before you guys too, and, and here's a question. Um, would you would you agree or disagree that it was the genres of classical music and jazz that gave birth to the box set? Yeah. Or even blues, Tim? Oh yeah, but I was thinking in particular like some of the you know early uh, orchestral recordings of classical music. You know, when... I, I I tend to agree with you about um, classical to an extent because I think uh, one of the first box sets, if not the first box set I bought, was uh, a Daniel Barenboim cycle of the uh, Beethoven piano sonatas. And right. It took me, you know, I, I think I you know. Only been working for you know a short while, so I you know decided right I'll, I'll save my money you know, moderately, not rush into it, and then go out and get it. But it was absolutely sweet having this multiple CD you know, collection of, uh, of great recordings of the Beethoven sonatas. I think too that you know the fact is with classical music, I think that it really um, it really adds to the whole you know the whole development of the box set because I mean. As classical music was done in certain movements, you know they, they would put them all together, and they would compile them, and it, and it just made sense to put them all out together instead of just putting putting them all out as just separate recordings. You know, you get different movements of one composer, and then putting them all together, and and I think also uh, John, like you said, with the blues, and mm. you know, with a lot of the old uh, 38s. And a lot, a lot of the original old recordings of these, you know, the things that were just going to pieces. I mean, like, you look at uh, Alan Lomax mm, right. and what he did. And yeah. I mean, and you look at also like a lot of uh, the Southern, like Delta Blues and a lot of the, the stuff that came out of New Orleans. And, you know, there, there's a lot of classical recordings of guys that were so impoverished that they were only able to record a single or record one track, you know, in you know, in, up, upstairs in some brothel somewhere, and have the guy come in and sit down with the recording equipment and just get one riff off this dude or one track or whatever. And they compiled all these things. So sometimes, you know, it, there wasn't ever there was never enough to really put out an album. 
but you had like 40 different artists doing 40 different songs, you got a box set. Well, the thing is, we sort of tend to think that the whole box set notion was really maybe, at least in popular styles, invented, what, sometime in the 80s or, or something like that. But right. um, I know that uh, for, uh, when there was all the fuss made about the re-release on CD of the um, Harry Smith anthology of American folk music, and that would have been like originally released like in the in the 50s or something like that, you know, yeah, all right. folk, blues and, and, and country recordings. It was doing a similar thing to um, what Alan Lomax was trying to do, I, I, I imagine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but anyway, and, and actually, you know, now that I'm thinking, when I was um, when I was a kid, I used to hang out at a, at a friend's place and he had, every time I went around to his place, I'd see like he had these box sets of Reader's Digest recordings, you know, like you'd open up the page yeah. of Reader's Digest or they'd show up as ads on TV and say, if you if you uh, um, give your credit card number now, we will give you a five album compilation of your sure. favorite classical overtures. But wait, sure. we'll also throw in three steak knives. And, well, and well, in America, actually, and in Canada, there was a company called KTEL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yep. We know about them well here. Oh, yeah. Well, KTEL... I mean, uh, I think it was Ron Ron Popeil. I think he was the guy that started KTEL. But because uh, he had the pocket fisherman and the pocket potato peeler or whatever, but he was the same guy that put out the the hits of the seventies or the hits of the sixties and all that type of shit. And he he would put out those collections. And like you were saying, Morris, like you know, you'd see them advertised on TV, or you'd see them advertised on a mag in a magazine or something, you know. And uh, I remember being a kid. Actually, some of the first box sets that I ever saw were children's box sets because okay. I, re I remember seeing uh, a box set for Peter and the Wolf hmm. for the, the, the recording. Like the, It was a narrator. I, I, I think it might have been Christopher Lee or somebody that recorded. It was, the, <laughs> it was the classical recording of Peter and the Wolf. And then it was, I remember a box set too of uh, a story I loved as a kid called Lonely Giant. And uh, I remember getting my uncle having the vinyl, and it was like three or four albums of, of just, uh, he, you know, they put it on in the afternoon. I'd lay on the bed and listen to this, you know, guy telling the story, you know, like long before audiobooks, you know, it was vinyl. Like, you know, the three or four albums of mm -hmm. just the story and the background music with all the sound effects and everything, you know. And, and I think J Jeff Wayne, even speaking of uh, that, he did, I think the original War of the Worlds came out as a box set too. The Jeff Wayne's uh, War of the Worlds with ELO. A, and, a yeah. Two album, two vinyl album. I mean, it had a nice book with it, but. But I think it was a double album. Yeah, but I think it came out as a kind of a, of, of a box set format at one point. Okay. I think it did. I, I think a, a lot of those double, double albums got remastered onto CD and they threw on some. Uh, some bonus tracks and a live, you know, a live set and called it a box set. Right. For me, I, I, I remember the big our box set things. Box set should be, you know, a, a collection or anthology of something rather than just yeah. a, a nice um, production of, repackaging. Of, of, of new, of right. Nice packaging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, well I would say that I remember my. my uh, everybody here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all here. Okay. My my recollection of of the the box set starts off in in the 80s when they started uh putting out like Led Zeppelin or Robert Johnson or any of 
any of uh, those kinds of, of acts as a, as a big set. And it, to me, it wasn't really till the 90s, or late 80s, early 90s that we started seeing somebody like Rhino Records, who I'm sure we're going to be talking about. Oh, yeah. Yep. Putting putting out their, their box sets to be their artists or, uh, you know, seeing box sets or compilations or, you know, uh, different decade sets, that kind of thing. And somewhere in the mix, the Bear Family Records out of Germany started putting out these sets that were just the complete recordings of whomever. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, so one thing that came into my mind while sort of thinking about uh, the box sets I wanted to talk about on this show, and I'll, I'll, Michael, I'll run this by you, is are there any decent box sets of... Australian artists. I mean, I remember, like, I think there was a, a compilation, not so much a compilation, but the Skyhooks had, like, all their albums put in a box set with one album of B-sides and rarities, but is there much else that, that you can think of that's, um, uh, that's been anthologised, like, in a, in a big way from uh, Australian Australian music? It's funny, it's funny you mention that, because that's the first box set I ever bought, and, yeah, I was going to talk about that tonight, but, yeah, there hasn't been a lot, which is which is interesting, isn't it? Like, um, you know, I think, you know, now that Leo's here, there'll be a, an Australian Leo Sayer box set out very soon, <laughs> but, yeah, I, there really isn't, and I guess because of the, the amount of money it costs to actually produce and market them. Right. Because you know a limited market for one country, it isn't really worth doing it. But when you I was, was going to say that when you imagine that um, uh, Aztec Music, which has been doing such an absolutely fantastic job at re-releasing um, vintage Australian, particularly seventies recordings that haven't seen right. the light of day in so long, you would have thought that you know they would be the one label that would maybe sort of take on the challenge of. Uh, putting something either stylistically together, you know, a, a genre type of thing, or, right. um, or or maybe, you know, take on, I don't know, someone like Billy Thorpe, for instance, you know, putting a, a sure we could get a, a, a three CD box set out, you know, out of his right. back catalogue. Or I was going to say, <laughs> La, Lobby Lloyd and the Coloured Balls and like all, like some of that early stuff. And I'm, I'm even amazed that like, uh, there hasn't been a box set of, of the stuff that George Young did. I mean, like the recordings that all, all the stuff that he did in his studio. Mm, actually, I think what we've got in Australia, though, is not so much, um, yeah, there's an absence of box sets, but do you agree that, say, labels and with rock historians like M.A. Baker and labels like Raven Records, yep. there's been some good anthologies, not necessarily box sets? Yeah, but Raven, Raven Records, they tend to do, for some unknown reason they tend to do more anthologies of uh, non-australian artists i mean they they do a true, great job true. but you know i I'm, yeah. I'm sort of curious why glenn a baker hasn't sort of been focusing on uh, on uh, the local scene especially like since when he's been on tv or on radio he's been such a champion mm. of the local scene i'm just really surprised yeah. but uh, sorry i can't remember one of you mentioned um uh, sorry tim you went and mentioned about uh um george young I think. And, yeah. And actually, you know what? Now that I think of it, Michael, do you remember? Has there been an Albert's Records box set? There's, there's been an Albert's sort of compilation, and, and well, there's been a number of them, but not a box set. Again, I think it just, just boils down to, you know, how many units they think they can sell. And it's, right. you know, a, a, and a lot of that stuff, that the Albert stuff, is is very limited to Australia. So, right. you know, I think that's. You think that's the cost outweighs? Right. Yeah. The cost yeah. outweighs. 
I think maybe yeah. they've, they've missed their time. I mean, I reckon you know, 2013 may may have missed the boat if they'd sort of gone and put out an Albert's box set. Um, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that. I reckon it would have sold in decent numbers while uh, the people who uh, you know who would have known right. a lot of those artists it would speaking, still be in their memory. Speaking of Australian, you know, box sets. There's one thing I have to say. You know. God damn it, when am I going to get my Ice House box set? <laughs> Not in this lifetime. Oh, oh man. So, so, so am I the only one in the in the room, the Skype room, that is, that uh, actually kind of likes Ice House? <laughs> oh, I'm with you. Yeah. No, they, were, they actually put something out last year. Really? It's, it's, called, it's called White Heat. Yeah. You know, I thought they were good songwriters, but listening to their output from the 80s, and I could make this accusation of so many bands. It's a little overproduced that maybe if they roughed up the edges on some of those tracks. Well, I'll uh, tell you, the, they would... the, um, the first album that they ever put out was called Ice House. They called them, the band was actually called at the start Flowers. But I think mm -hmm. they changed the name to Ice House because it was apparently an American band called Flowers. Uh, and that first album... Um, you know, I never heard the whole album, but the singles from it were absolutely killer. And once they sort of went um, an, a, a more synthopoppy, I thought that's where they lost it. But they were still sort of part of that new wave movement. Yeah. They, that, there was this song called Walls, which I thought was just an absolute killer single. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that one. I do not. I, I'm awesome, I had a work colleague, Eric, that so, so was what a big was that ice one? house fan. They were an awesome band. I, I saw them play here in Adelaide as Flowers before they'd released their first album, and they did wow. like Bowie covers and T Rex covers, and they were they were they were really a grungy rock band. They were great. Yeah, yeah I, I imagine that in those early days that would have been fantastic. You know, it's funny because I, I have kind of a personal memory of Ice House because there was that single. What was it called? Electric Blue. Mm. Yep. And I remember the first time I ever heard that song was actually the first time I kind of. Uh, Stepped into a building where ladies were known to kind of uh, accidentally lose their clothing. <laughs> well, that that was one of the, the the big rotation songs on Top Forty Radio back in '88 or so. Yeah. And one of my friends wound up buying the probably the cassette tape, and we were in his car driving around, and he starts playing it. And uh, there's a song called the "Heartbreak Kid" that's that's this great kind of. Um, Noirish, almost almost alt country ish uh, track. In fact, it's it's on, it's on the short list of songs that I want somebody like a Nico Case or a, a Willie Nelson to, to cover because I think they could they could transform it into into something uh, that that keeps the core of the original but has more of the sound that the lyrics need. Right. Huh. And well, speaking of Ice House, I'm a little surprised that there wasn't a box set of, uh, you know, 80s Australian pop that was marketed here in the States because there were a lot of bands that had a hit or two here in the States and, and just they didn't vanish from the consciousness because uh, especially in the early 90s that the radio had yet to be transformed into the right. into the dreck it is now. But so there was still enough of that stuff that was lingering. Well, we got a little bit of we got a little bit of Jimmy Barnes, and you know, and of course, you know, we, you know, yeah, <laughs> we, you know, we wound up getting men at work, and you know, we there was a lot that we uh, 
See, we see, got this, well, is, the, this is the thing from our end of the world. Any time an Australian band made it in America, and we only sort of knew this through listening to Casey Kasem's American Top 40 being syndicated here, uh, we always thought mm-hmm. it was a big deal. But we, all, you know, always were thinking it was it was only Little River Band, Air Supply. Right. Men right. at Work and Olivia Newton-John. So we're thinking, you know, for crying out loud, we've got all these other great bands. And, and you can't forget Akadaka. You're, Ak- you're, Ak- you're forgetting wow. NXS was huge. No, that, that, NXS, NXS came later. NXS came, this is well before okay. any of that. Um, and by the time, I mean, from, okay, so Eric, from your perspective and maybe, you know, Tim as well from yours, uh, when did, in your memory, ACDC become big in uh in north america all right speaking of acdc they do have a box set the bonfire um, box set yeah yeah, yeah. Right, so they, they got more than uh, one box set i'm pretty sure 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 go ahead tim i'll let you go first on I, this one. I would say the first time i i really took note of acdc was probably about honestly i'd say probably about 78 or 79 because uh it, it this is going to sound really silly but um we had a place in my hometown called Rena's Rent a Record, and you could actually rent vinyl and just go there and you know you'd pay to go home and listen to an album, bring it back, you know, just like a, like a video store, right? Mm-hmm. And they actually had some of the Australian imports, like the the uh, the ACDC records in North America were different from the ones you guys got, right? Because you guys had like TNT, which we didn't have. And, and some of the first ACDC I ever heard was actually the Australian imports. And I was really kind of struck because I was high, like, wait high, high voltage, the Australian version, and high voltage, right. the American version, two different albums. I think the right. high voltage, the American, right. is like a hybrid of high right. voltage and TNT, right. the Australian version. Right, 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 right. And TNT didn't wind up, you know, uh, until Dirty Deeds. I mean, like later, yep. you know, like when they put that out in North America. But... Um, no, I mean, the first thing I ever really heard of ACDC, too, was If You Want Blood, the live record. Right. And, and that was about, and I remember seeing, like, you know, uh, in the record store arena, seeing a poster behind the counter of, like, Angus with, like, the neck of the guitar sticking in his stomach. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the question I have, Michael, John, did ACDC ever come to play at your school? No, no, don't like because that in no. the early days, you know, when with, with Bon Scott, like before they sort of became mm-hmm. really mega yeah. famous, that's what they did. They went and played well, uh, high school right. lunchtime, right. and that's like in Canada, like where I'm from. Rush is the same story. Rush played every high school in Ontario where I I was from, and everybody was like, yeah, yeah, Rush played here, Rush played there, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, you know. So, so Rush haven't even played in a country, let alone a school. <laughs> <laughs> You, you just well, send, consider send yourself note, lucky. I mean, send a note oh, to the no, band. I want and Rush say, to play my country. Send, send a note to the band and say, Neil, you can stay back. Just send the rest of the guys here. I'll I'll thumb the skins for you. Right, 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 right. So, so Michael, did so back to the question: Did Akadaka ever play your school or any of your mates' schools in Adelaide? No, not not that I'm aware of. But see, I, I remember hearing. Can I sit next to you, girl, with Dave Evans singing on right. the radio wow. when I was maybe ten years old? And I, and I remember the moment I heard it; it stuck in my mind, and I didn't know who it was until I heard the song again when they re-released it on TNT. You know, a few years later. So, right. yeah, never, never got to see um, 
you know, those sort of gigs here in Adelaide that I remember. Right. John, how about you? What was the question, Morris? Sorry, I just dropped out. Oh, sorry. Okay. I was just wondering, do you recall um, ACDC ever playing your high school or anyone you know their high no, school growing but up? My, my first introduction, I may have come to ACDC a few years late. Um, Michael will probably remember this collection. There was a great hard rock uh, Australian collection called Rocker, imaginatively called Rocker 76. <laughs> that was one of the Horrendous k record. Right. No, no, it was it? No, oh, Albert's put it there. Oh, Albert's yeah, put that's it there. Right. Okay. I've got it on vinyl still, and it had um, you know, Vandrin or you know, Vandrin Young compositions like um, John Paul Young, really before he went illegitimate and <laughs> became a chart success with a great version of uh, St. Louis, Show Me the Way to St. Louis. Oh, yeah. And really, that was my introduction to. You know, still obviously the Bon Scott led ACDC, but no, look, I don't really remember them um, when they were that small. Right. But um, on, on a completely unrelated, but not totally unrelated note, my wife, who grew up in Ireland, remembers seeing Thin Lizzy at a local pub. Oh! oh. So that was pretty cool. I want to cry. Yeah, but, but I. Yeah, she, she she got Thin Lizzy in a local pub, and she got in 1989. She got Van Morrison in their local youth community centre oh. on on his birthday. Oh. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So they they you know, and my wife's not even a music nut like I am, and she you know she was uh, at the at the feet of greatness, and right. maybe didn't realise it as much. Um, you know, I did. One thing I wanted to say, though, about ACDC that I never got in that was kind of interesting to me was that, you know, they always, well, later on, they got pegged into the whole heavy metal genre, whatever. But it, with the early stuff, I mean, like, when I, I remember seeing being a, like, being a wee kid, I don't even know how my memory is still, I can retain these memories, but I remember watching, uh, there was a guy named Bert Sugarman in America who had the Midnight Special, this TV show, music show in the 70s, right. late night show. And they had ACDC on there uh, with, with Bond. Mm. And I remember watching that and thinking, man, this is just like Chuck Berry. Yep. Because, because he, you know, and not just because Angus was, you know, duck walking across the stage just like Chuck. And they, but covered, it was almost, they covered school days. Right, but it was also the whole thing about, uh, you know, uh, Maybelline. I just got this whole sound out of them, like Maybelline. Yes. You know, like it's just a ding, 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 You know, they had that whole boogie thing that, that, that Chuck had perfected, you know. And, I mean, because my dad, he was, you know, big into American graffiti. And uh, there was that film, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, that came out. And right. there was like... Uh, you know all all that stuff. I mean, like I when I originally saw ACDC, to me, it wasn't so much metal like Judas Priest or any of that other stuff. To me, it was it was closer to like Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck and yeah, and all yeah. that stuff. Do, do you think like, uh, Tim, they are an Australian version of you know like so many bands, but they were they were I guess possibly nearly a decade later, the bands you know like you know the band and the Rolling Stones and even the early Beatles or the Stars. Right. Cut their teeth on that American uh, forefathers of rock, fifties, late fifties, early sixties rock. Well, they were 
they had very similar influences and they probably played the same songs in pubs and bars. Sure, sure, sure. And, you know, I mean, it's almost like that metaphoric boomerang. And we talked about this in episodes like in the past when, you know, when I was telling you about when I went to Cambodia, the idea of, you know, how music gets transported through different means. And, I mean, you know, we were talking about how all the American chess stuff and everything wound up uh, going over to Europe, you know, through the Merchant Marines and how Europe winds up delivering it back to America through the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Animals and the Yardbirds and all of that. So it's kind of like this cultural boomerang that winds up, you know, mm-hmm. just going around, you know. Yeah, well, let me jump like, in. I was say, let me jump in here. With- um, um, boomerang was what we also mentioned in another episode, that same stuff, the source material mm-hmm. for all those kids, you know, it was, the, it was the same kid in Northern Ireland, it was the young, it was the kid in Liverpool, England, sure. tuning in to the satellite radio that, um, you know, started so many artists and bands and you know what's kind of ironic john is that you know the way that you know europe tuned into america um in the 80s in the early 80s we tuned into europe because like there used to be a local radio station in toronto called cfny and they used to get these broadcasts uh, there was a guy they knew in england and he would record live shows in england and he would send them over courier uh, on reel to reel, and then they'd play them at the radio station. So we were hearing like live recordings, like the original psychedelic fur stuff, or like the original Strangler stuff, or like the original like uh, you know Public Image Limited, like all all the stuff that you know the first time that you know when they were starting at midnight every Thursday night, they'd have this okay live from London, and it would be this recording from like six months prior from a, from a gig in England. And we'd all tune in, be like, you know, this is amazing. Or they'd have this guy named Lee Carter, and Lee Carter would be on the phone from England, and he'd talk about the new singles that were coming out in England or the new bands that were coming out in England, and he'd be talking to a guy on the phone, and the guy on the phone would actually stick the phone up to the mic, and you could hear the guy going, yeah, in England, we're doing blah, 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 and you could barely hear him. But that's what we tuned into, right? So, I mean, that whole thing is people were hungry for it. And today, with the age of the internet, the digital age, people think this sounds ludicrous what I'm talking about, but that was the way it was, you know. Right. Um, okay, I'm going to use this break very quickly to. Um, so what we'll do is we'll go take a um, a quick uh, piss break, tea break, scotch break, whatever you want to do, and then when we come back, uh, we'll actually start delving into the box sets that we uh, want to recommend to uh, the listeners out there. Um, you're listening to. Love that album. Oh, sorry. Did you want to quickly say something, Eric? Or no, no, no. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. Okay. Um, all right. So we'll we'll be back in um, in a minute or two, and uh, we'll be talking about our favourite box sets. You're listening to Love That Album with uh, the Shooting the Shit Crew. We'll be back very shortly. Do you like movies? Do you like podcasts? Do you like podcasts where a guy talks about movies? It's not that very encouraging, but okay. You should tune in to Justin Oberholter's Filmwave, where each week I reveal a couple of movies and whatever else comes to mind. Now, does that sound good? Really? What if I got you a celebrity endorsement? Hey, this is Sylvester Stallone. Listen to Justin Oberholter's Filmwave. This guy's the cinematicist. He watches all the films and stars Stone Cold Steve Austin. Ah, much better. So tune in to Justin Oberholter's Filmwave. Go to freakingawesomenetwork.com, filmrape.lips.com, or subscribe on iTunes. 
When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. And we're back. You're listening to episode 50 of Love That Album, the music discussion podcast. And I'm most happy to be uh, online here with four other excellent gentlemen, music fans, people who will now go through and uh, recommend some marvellous box sets for you. Uh, We have online Eric Reanimator, John Sterrett, Michael Persh, and Tim Merrill, and we'll start off with uh, Eric. What um, what would be the first box set you would like to uh, bring to our attention okay. and to the listeners' attention? So issued by Rhino Records and currently out of print, unfortunately. Let me let me just give you the uh, the first couple of tracks on this box set. Come on, everybody, by Eddie Cochran. Be by Vicky Bobo Go by Gene Vincent. Jailhouse Rock by Elvis. Yes, it is the loud, fast, and out-of-control Wild Sounds of the 50s box set. Nice. So the 50s were the era of the single. You know, uh, albums were around, but they were mostly compilations of singles. And a box set like this is a great basic primer for that loud, fast, you know, 50s rock and roll sound. So you have, you know, Gene Vincent and Elvis and Chuck Berry, but you've also got you know, the Rocketeens, and you've got Fats Domino and Joe Turner. Louis Prima's on here. Uh, Dwayne Eddy. So it's surf. It's rock and roll. It's rockabilly. It's uh, There's some crooning going on here. You've got Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. You've got Wanda Jackson. Uh, Buddy Holly. I mean, it's just a solid collection of great tunes. And you get a lot of the stuff you know. You know, you get your Jailhouse Rock, and you get your Bye Bye Love, and you get your Bo Diddley. But at the same time, you get, you know, Flying Saucers Rock and Roll by Billy Riley and his Little Green Men. And you get, uh, you know, um, just Crazy Man Crazy by Bill Haley and the Comets and Johnny Burnett Trio. And then there's, there's a lot of, uh, not a lot, but there's a, a good selection of the the more obscure stuff. Now, Rhino did put that box set out of print and they followed it up with a new one called The Rock and Bones, which is much more of the, the rare, forgotten you know, crazy rockabilly, punky stuff from the fifties. Now, what what do you so, think happened? Anybody, Does that go out of out of print because they lose the rights to distribute those some of those songs? I believe that that's usually what happens with the uh, the rights issue. So let's talk about Rhino for just a minute. Rhino started out as a record shop, and then they started doing reissues in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, and the the record label took off from there. And that's kind of been their bread and butter is these reissues. And 
sometime, and I, I think it's been in the last decade or so, the 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 original owners sold it to Warner Brothers, and they went off and they started a new uh, company called the Shout Factory, which is responsible for putting out some music, but mainly these days they're they're issuing movies and giving us Blu-rays of uh, stuff that wouldn't otherwise come out. So the, the Rhino model was to license all of these these tracks and put them together and repackage them and sell them, but they had a very, very high standard of, of packaging and production and all of those kinds of things. I would like to say right now that as far as I'm concerned, Rhino is the definitive label of the box set. They are, they are the representative label for the box set. Yep. Yeah, most I, definitely. I tend, to, I tend to agree with that, although I think um, bringing up bringing up the rear is um, uh, the English label Proper Records. I think they've. Um, I, I don't think that their box sets uh, look as flashy, or maybe the books aren't as great necessarily. But they've produced some really, really fine uh, compilations. You know, mainly more hard to get stuff, but um, just the the depth and breadth of uh, some of the stuff that they've put out, I, I just find staggering, and usually at a quite a reasonable price. But um, we can get to that. Um, so, anything else you wanted to sort of mention about that? Um, about that rock and roll set, what was it called again? What was it? Well, it's called Loud, Fast, and Out of Control, and the the kind of follow up one is the Rock and Bones '50s punk and rockabilly. And I, I guess I'm not going to talk about it too much, but one of the things Rhino also did is and made a lot of money off of, and kind of perfected this was a number of boxes of doo wop. And I, I do have the first one, and that also was in the same mode of picking up all these doo wop singles, having uh, you know great liner notes. People writing, uh, in, not in depth, but but giving you more information than just this band was from here, and they had this many hits, kind of, kind of uh, topic. Uh, and you know, if, if you're into doo wop, I mean, that's 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 where to go. Well, I mentioned Proper Records a second ago, and one of their sets that I have is called Doo Wop Delights. Um, and yeah, that's that's got some fine stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a you know, a lot of crossover between uh, between the sets. But yeah, I do I do like my doo wop. Yep, not surprise me either. <laughs> All right, uh, Michael, your first box set. Well, we've already we already mentioned it, which is quite quite interesting in itself. But I, Tim Tim mentioned before the uh, the box set of Peter and Wolf, and I, and I really wished I would have got that because it, you know there's not not too many other pieces of music that you can make an oboe sound like a duck. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you, but you can't make a duck sound like an oboe, no matter how hard you blow into it. And you've tried, you've tried this, have you? I think, I think you just tried the wrong end. <laughs> oh. the, uh, we mentioned the Skyhooks box set before, and, and that was the first box set that I ever that I ever bought. Right. About 1982 it came out, and it's as, as you said before, Morris, it's, it's an interesting thing that, that not a lot of Australian box sets have ever been released and that's certainly the first one that I ever remember to be packaged up like that and and really at the time I didn't think they had really much of a market for it because Skyhook's heyday was well and truly gone there was a in, in the same year there was a, a sort of you know a really bad compilation single being and I think it made top 10 called Hooked on Hooks being... And oh, it, I remember you know, that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it was, it was awful. It had a, this awful drum machine over, you know, a compilation of Skyhook's tunes, and it was really? it was horrendous. But 
yeah, I guess that sparked some interest to uh, to maybe milk those old things for some for some more cash for Mushroom Records, maybe. But and I digress for a minute. But but I guess maybe your listeners, you know, in far flung corners of the world, have no idea who we're talking about. But but if you know your listeners in 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 Europe or the UK. Um, Iron Maiden recorded a Skyhooks tune in about 1980 before Bruce Dickinson joined a, a tune called Women in Uniform, which, right. which I think is really well known yep. as a as an Iron Maiden tune. So sure. they may remember that one. Sure, folks in the folks in the states, I think the only the only sort of obscure cover I, I recall John Mellencamp recorded "You Just Like Me Because I'm Good in Bed." There's, Did he and I, really? <laughs> Absolutely, and it's a very weird version of that, sort of country version of that. Oh. Anyway, I wonder if I wonder if anyway, got so banned from the radio. Maybe did. Because <laughs> so didn't most of um, uh, living in the seventies get banned on the radio at the time. Absolutely, six six tracks. You can't get better better than that. That, that just you know how would that happen these days? Get banned from iTunes? No, it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't happen. <laughs> uh, the, the interesting thing about this box set, I guess, is. Is that it? It repackaged the uh, the original LPs and the uh, the live album that they released in '78. But there, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, Morris, there's a there's another LP of um, sort of you know rarities and B sides, which which you know didn't really see the light of day too much. Which was uh, well part of the reason I bought it. But it, you know, as as you may know, I'm a bit of a Skyhooks tragic, so I I didn't only just buy the LP box set, but they was at, there was actually a cassette box set as oh, well you got that too. and i i have and i probably have the only one of that <laughs> and i think i played that, it once it's surprising that um uh, that, that never mind as a box set but that the individual albums sort of didn't really get the full grand remastering treatment i think they've sort of been released pretty shoddily i think it maybe at one stage living in the 70s got re-released with a couple of bonus tracks but they never really went to there is with the, bonus notes um, or anything like that I'm looking at the Amazon listing for "Living in the '70s" original yep. recording remastered extra tracks import. Oh, really? So, yeah, oh, well. and that's it. Yep. That's the only one. That's yep. the only one that they remastered, which is a real shame. I, I, and I that remaster, e- ego, ego is not a dirty word. Was a better album. In in a lot of ways, I agree. It was it was certainly you know I think the production was really was really good on that record. But mm. um, interesting thing as well that box set. I think about in the 90s got re-released on cd but actually in uh a little road case which which is very very cool cost me a fortune so i'm gonna have three versions of the same box set. <laughs> but, but interesting is, as tragic. i said before yeah it's, it's a shame i know the um but that's I, I think the success of that in 1982 actually was you know one of the catalysts that got the band back together in 1983 and they they toured around australia and made a fortune mm. um so yeah it's you know maybe mushroom records took a punt with that box set and, and it paid off you know into the future big time so yeah. right right okay um john your first listing well i was, I was gonna say um i think the um Greatest box sets probably uh, come about by the artists that are the worst self-editors. Oh, yeah. And um, uh, this one is um, possibly, it's probably a very obvious one, but it's one that blew my socks off back in the day and it's um, uh, it, was, it started a whole series of box sets, but Dylan's Bootleg Series Volume 1 to 3. Right, yeah, that was... Uh... What, 
that, that, that was a uh, great one, yeah. Yeah, what was genuine, genuinely great about it, I'd been collecting Dylan um, for, you know, for several years at that point. And, you know, like we thought we had everything, but this box set actually released tracks or versions of tracks that, that weren't even captured in the pretty, you know, pretty completest Dylan collecting community. Right. And, um, and I think uh, to Tim's point earlier, there's that type of box set that, that you have material that, you know, you go back to time and time again. And then there's box sets where you realise, you know, that like, uh, you know, Bootleg Series Volume 1 to 3 was essentially outtakes. And then you'll have a, a box set that, you know, absolutely beautiful packaging, um, you know, lovely book. But you, then you hear the material and you say, yeah, I can see why I didn't make the, the album. Or I can see why the album of ten songs, and and this is this is a box set on the other end of the spectrum, and may maybe controversial to yourself, um, Morris or Jeff, who can't be with us tonight, or any Springsteen fans like the the, the re relatively recent Springsteen box set, The Promise. I can see why those cuts didn't make Darkness on the Edge of Town. So it's it's in the category that Tim mentioned earlier. Absolutely beautiful packaging. Mm -hmm. You get um, Springsteen's actual um, spiral notebooks with his uh, notes when he was writing the song, you know, the 80 songs that eventually got culled down to Darkness's 10. And you get a couple of uh, great um, DVDs, the making of the album. But I, I feel the other end of the spectrum, it's one where you've got this beautiful package, but you know, for me anyway, maybe I haven't given enough goes. It's not something you'll go back and listen to a lot. Whereas with Dylan's um, bootleg series, volume one to three, you, you had some, yes, you know, even at that point, we were aware of Line Willie McTell and we were aware of mm. Foot of Pride, you know, a lot of the outtakes. But at that point in 1991, I guess, you know, the, uh, the recordings of Indiscriminate Origin, I always get that wrong, uh, Morris, you always um, correct me. Uh, oh, um, but um, at that point, they weren't necessarily always in the uniformly good quality that I suppose we get them today, you know, with the, with the computer age and cleaning up. Mm. So, and I, and I think that one and its predecessor, Biograph, which I think, and I'd be interested to get everyone's opinion, I think Biograph, because it sold in quite large numbers, may have been, and it was just on that precipice of the CD age, I think it came out in 1985, <clears throat> was one of the you know forebearers in that mid '80s movement, and with the advent of CDs, that for the record companies, box sets actually started to be started to morph from a boutique release to something that was viably commercial. Right. Didn't Eric Clapton's Crossroads like win some sort of Grammy award for you know, best compilation or something like that? I mean, that probably would have been a a moment where the company sort of started to pay attention and think maybe we can do something more with this. Yes. Right. Now I see what you definitely meant about the um, about that Bob Dylan uh, bootleg suit, and that's become something of a cottage industry forum. I mean, I think those albums have been more interesting than um, you know, a lot of the new material he's been releasing over the last mm. few years. Um, well, look, I don't think they, I don't think they've captured, and and I don't think they, you know, they've had. As deep a well to dig into, but that very first series of one to three, 
I don't feel I don't none of the other subsequent releases have really done it for me because what I feel you get, say like the um, um, uh, the nineteen sixty six live nineteen sixty six box set, they managed to butcher and and edit out with the digital tracking. You know, one of the most famous heckles in the history of rock and roll. So that yeah, that's absolutely a sin not worth mentioning. And what you get with some of the other ones, like the Rolling Thunder Review box set, is you don't get remotely an entire show. You get a, you know, Columbia or Sony choice of a Rolling Thunder show, which is which will inevitably, you know, probably be the wrong songs or the obvious songs. Right. But that 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 first one, Bootleg Series One to Three, even for like seasoned Dylan connect collectors, there were some mysteries in there that you know. There were some things that people weren't even aware of. What's interesting and you mentioned, because I, I, I was reading the um, Clinton Halen biography of uh, Dylan you know, years ago called Behind the Shades, and I mean, I, there's a lot that Halen wrote in his book that I you know, disagreed with, and you know, one of the contentions that he made was that he thought that that box set was a real missed opportunity. Um, I, I mean, you know, I, I disagree on that count. However, what that box set did, it, did inspire was uh, the bootleg community to go and put together like a, a number of uh, three CD sets called you know, the Genuine Bootleg Series. <clears throat> and you know, there, there seemed to be a, a well deeper than any of us had imagined. But yeah, certainly there was a lot that was on the, uh, the Columbia Bootleg Series volumes <clears throat> one to three that had your head scratching thinking, wow, you know, where, did, where did this come from? There's a lot of great material there. Yeah. All right. Uh, Tim, your first set you want to discuss. All right. Well, one thing um, I was going to say earlier about box sets was uh, that a lot of times they're actually able to kind of uh, document a progression or a change in an artist. Yep. You know, and, and sometimes artists are so different and so unique that they, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, they don't, they evolve and they just change in, in different ways that you would never expect. And it's great that a box set can kind of, you know, kind of uh, corral or kind of, uh, you know, reel in the wide spectrum of different things that they do. And for me, um, the box set that I want to talk about here is a box set called uh, In Progress and In Motion. And it's a, a box set by the one and only Taj Mahal. Yes, a great, I've got that set, fantastic box set. And, you know, you would think, well, how different can Taj Mahal be? He's a blues guy. But if you really know anything about, you know, the career of Taj Mahal, he he ran the gamut from doing so many different things. I mean, you know, going all the way from, like, traditional standards like Frankie and Johnny mm. and going into, like, you know, Rising Suns with, you know, Ry Cooter mm. playing the rock and roll circus. Right. Doing, doing stuff with Bonnie Raitt. I mean, you know, he Taj was a guy who was able. You know, the funny thing is, is you know, a lot of people say that kind of Cooter kind of, you know, uh, covered the industry of, of being diverse. But I I uh, I disagree. You know, that I think maybe that's kind of what brought them together was the fact that they were able to cover so many influences. Right. But but Cooter wasn't the only one. I mean, I think Taj 
you know, through looking at this box, you can see that he's kind of he's kind of like a guy like Cash, where where Johnny Cash could play in a different different way, different ways, or do different songs, but he could still be himself. Right. You still knew it was Cash, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether he was playing Nine Inch Nails or Soundgarden or whatever, like you still knew it was Johnny Cash. Right? And Taj is the same way, where he can he can play like in a rock style or he can do a different thing, but it's still Taj Mahal, you know. Yeah. And I think that you know a lot of his early recordings are were hard to come by, or or it's like there's so many great moments of you know of Taj Mahal that you got to pick up this album and you got to pick up this album and you got to pick up you know like Natural and all this stuff. But I think this box set really, like I said, it, it kind of corrals in, it, it kind of reels in. All the the high points of his whole career, and that's what I really love about this uh, this box set. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mention about showing how varied an artist he was, because there is stuff that is, you know, like you know the stuff of the Rising Suns uh, and some of his early solo work, you know, which might be straight out boogie blues, and then there's the acoustic stuff like you know the fishing blues and. Uh, and then right. there's, there's Calypso stuff on the third disc for crying out loud, you know. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely beautiful artist. And, and, and it makes and me great, wonder. So, I was I was just going to say one thing that I don't think that that box set though does adequately enough is show enough of him. He, he was he's a great piano player as well. I've got this I've got this oh, album absolutely. of him doing a, a, a concert on a German radio, and he's playing the piano like you know nobody's business and I, I just wish that that box set had sort of um showcased some of his talents in that regard too but otherwise yeah yeah f a fantastic set and i was going to say that you know like what i said earlier about you know people thinking that Ry cooter was the only one to corner the market on diversity if anything it might make me wonder whether or not that Ry cooter kind of actually gleaned a lot of his diversity from taj No, yeah, yeah, you're right. No, that's a that's a great box set, and that's a that's a great call. Really terrific, um, diverse artist. I, I saw him a few years ago uh, on a double bill with uh, Mavis Staples, and unfortunately, he came on after Mavis, and like you know, she raised the roof with this um, high energy gospel set, and then he came on looking as casual as all that, and after everyone's pulses had been raised, you know, with this exciting music that she did. He came on and just, you know, hey, everyone, let's, let's chill out. And I think it would have been better to start the evening chilled and then had our pulses raised, but still. Right, uh, but after Mavis Staples, I mean, what can you do? You can't. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do after that, right? Yeah, it's like, not, you know, you ain't going to top Mavis Staples, man. It's, no. no. All right. Um, now, I'll just take a couple of minutes to talk about the um, first box set I want to mention. And this is one that I know will be very close to uh, Eric's heart I'm you know, possibly uh, the rest of you but I know for sure will be close to Eric's heart now you've already gone and mentioned uh, Rhino Records Eric and I, I figure I'd get this one in um, before you mentioned it because you know, I'm, I'm sure you I'm sure it's something that you have and I'm talking about Nuggets original artifacts from the first psychedelic era now you've already gone and mentioned uh, Nuggets 2 in uh, the album I Love segment on uh, on the show. I can't remember how many episodes back. But um, yeah, look, this is this is a box set which I'm, I'm really surprised. It only came into my life 
I don't know, just a few years ago, uh, I'd sort of been vaguely aware of its existence and then I think, you know, every year come my birthday, my sisters you know, put together and get me a, a CD voucher for one of our local CD stores and I thought, right, mm -hmm. this is something I need to have and, you know, the guy who was working at the store said, look, you know, it may not be for you, you know, give it a listen, you know, sit down there, have a couple of lunch times to give it a listen. And I, you know, sat down and listened to, you know, a few cuts from um, the first couple of albums and I thought, yep, no, this is for me. This is for me. Uh, for, for those of you out there that you know, may not know about it, uh, I think in 1972, uh, I think he was then a rock journalist, then went on to become the guitarist for uh, Patti Smith's band. Lenny Kay had gone and put together um, this double vinyl album of uh, mainly forgotten bands. Uh, I mean, they could have been bands that had uh, one hit or, you know, just maybe a, a, a local hit rather than a national hit. Or they may have been, you know, bands that had a, a one-off single that, that went nowhere. But these songs, just because, you know, they weren't going to, you know, compete with the Beatles or the Kinks or Creedence Clearwater Revival didn't mean that they didn't have anything to offer. And actually, now that I come to think of it, even Credence have a have a stake in this box set because uh, they they turn up. I was going to say the Gollywogs, yeah. Um, uh, but um, yeah, so look, uh, there's there's a lot that's absolutely wonderful in here, and there's it's spoken about that you know this was what was called the garage movement and a, uh, maybe something that led towards punk. I mean, I I don't know, maybe I'd be interested to get your take on this. Um, Eric and, and Tim, but I see that there's there's a lot more that's going on here. There's a lot of stuff that you know probably sort of was uh, in a straight out uh, pop vein. There's some you know great pop harmony melodies, but, mm -hmm. but there is but there are bands of course like you know the Sonics and the Monks, which um, uh, yeah would have probably set set the stage along with you know other bands you know to come like like the Stooges later on that uh, it would have maybe set the stage for what became punk but um, but yeah no some of, the, some of my favorite songs are you know the more the more poppy but there, there's very little on here that I dislike and the thing is a, a, a compilation of this nature means that even the ordinary songs still sort of work you're still happy to sort of come back and keep listening to them and there are some songs in here which you think you know taken by itself or you know if you listen to a whole album of it you might think yeah this is very very derivative and not necessarily that interesting but in the context of a whole bunch of really great songs it, it, they're, they're sort of interesting pieces that complement uh, the obviously great ones and you've got you've got some bands in here which really are better well known so you've got um uh love I've got a I've got a song, you know, seven and seven is. Um, uh, I mean, maybe uh, some other songs which didn't necessarily, you know, bring out a whole career, but you know, famous things like you know, "Wooly Bully" by Sam Sham and the Pharaohs, and she's about a movement from the Sir Douglas Quintet, uh, right. and the Electric Prunes. I had too much to dream, but um, then you get you know, some some songs which uh, a public execution by Mouse, which I, I'm not crazy. I think it's a bit of a shitty Dylan ripoff, but you know it's it's, but you know it's interesting in the context. And there's one song called "Multi" by the Barbarians, which 
Uh, yeah. This might sound funny, but I mean, I, I kind of look at Lenny K in, in the way of, you know, like when I went to university, I studied history. So I've always, you know, had a wide view on on history or what defines history. Right. And I kind of looked at Lenny K as a real historian in himself. And, you know, he, to me, is kind of like Lomax as being a historian in the sense that this is almost the Nuggets collections are almost like the musical equivalent of like uh, a wing of the Smithsonian to right. me. Yeah. And it's just that's the way like I mean thank God for guys like Lenny K yep. who actually had the insight to you know to have even the smallest band the one hit wonders represented. And it, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about where you know you got some bands that you know put out one track or two tracks or not even enough to make a blip and you know you 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 know you can barely it's not even worth your while to put it on a 45 but to put it on a collection oh sure you guys can be part of that you know like and so they throw it in you know and that's what the nuggets thing was all about i think the other thing that nuggets maybe inspired was you know the people in communities you know we were talking before about you know uh, bootlegs or recordings of indeterminate origin. Um, so there've been you know, multiple CD sets. I know of one called Psychedelic Archaeology, which has you know, a lot more localized hits or non-hits um, that you know, didn't make the Nuggets box set. And I think there's something called Pebbles. I'm not sure if that's legit yes. or if that's uh, is that legit? Yeah, legit. Yeah. Right. It's quasi legit, depending who you talk to. Right. Um, so, you know, sets like that, and even I think I might have spoken with you, Eric, about this, you know, recently we've had, um, uh, over here, uh, Down Under Nuggets. Can I jump in here and talk about the Nuggets box set as well? Please, absolutely. I've, I've my next pick. Oh, that so, was your next pick. Okay. Um, the, uh, I said, mentioned earlier, we we're going to talk about hippies again, and this is where. <laughs> <laughs> there, okay. there is, there, there is a, uh, an element of, of that kind of peace and love thing on this box set but there's also the element of the um loud fast you know young people with something to say about the world and what's going on around them in this set um what else you know the the sounds on this box set are all over the place it Mm. is uh people regionally in the united states young people usually young men in their garage with two or three guitar lessons trying to be the stones the beetles the kinks and the animals but bringing in what they were hearing locally or what they they knew about and if you go through and you read the 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 very very excellent and comprehensive liner notes for this box set and let me say that i think that this is the definitive box set when it comes to how to put together a set that covers a time period a sound and a scene but you know you you read about all these regional regional acts that had a regional hit because that's how radio worked in those days and uh you get the you know you get the feel of what was going on with the music at the time this also catches this um this group of musicians before they became navel gazing before they became overly self-involved before uh, a lot of them just they did they did one or two songs they did you know a couple of maybe an album or two and then they real life showed up and they went to Vietnam or they went to college or a combination of the two or they you know they got married and settled down and yeah some of it is kind of uh, juvenile and some of it is kind of 
uh, you know, how did this become a come a hit? I mean, it's uh, it's very very simple. It's what uh, what Dave Grohl re- referred to once as the the fact that that every generation comes about and they strip down the music basically to Louie Louie. His contention is that's what punk rock did. That's what uh, that's what college rock did in the '80s, and that's what alternative rock did in the early '90s. And by the way, uh, Louie Louie is on this set somewhere. Yes, it is. But I, I would just I just really quickly some of my my favorite tracks that are lesser known are things like the Castaways' "Liar Liar." I mean, that's a that's a killer tune. That was not um, used in Good Morning Vietnam, I think. It I'm probably was. It's been so long since I've seen that. Right. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the the Music Machine. Mm. Talk talk, that's a great song. Yes. Uh, the, then you get stuff on here like the Swinging Medallions, Double Shot of My Baby's Love, which right. is just this great party frat rock, go to the beach kind of a song. And but it's got this, it's, well, it's the band's names that's also got the swing to it. Uh, right. The net, the Nets, I wonder is a, is a great little love song that that most people don't know. Uh, and then there's some really weird out there stuff like optical sound by the human expression and uh, just just odd, just off the wall. You know, uh, obviously, Wooly Bully, you mentioned Strange Loves, I Want Candy. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's a song that, that's been uh, reinvented by each successive generation. And that, that's another thing wow, about wow, the wow. set. Yeah, it, is that uh, a lot of these songs were were simple enough that the early punk rock bands in the 1970s were able to cover them as part of their set when they didn't have enough material for, you know, full set or a full album of their own. You got people covering, you know, Double Yellow Line by Talk Talk or Psychotic Reaction by The Count Five. Um, well, what's even what's even funnier is that you actually wind up having compilation labels later, like Crip, you know, like the Crip Records uh, label. Yep. And some of the, you know, some of the Crip style compilations and a lot of that stuff was actually bands that were covering the stuff that was coming out in Nuggets. Yeah. So it's almost like the second generation of Nuggets, you know, like a lot of the, the Crip compilations. Yeah. And there's, there's, I, I mean, there's, there's just all kinds of oddball stuff on here. And then, then there's also a, a couple of um, tracks by, by bands who had musicians that would go on to to uh, careers that we know to this day. Uh, you know, the Amboy Dukes featuring Ted Nugent, who yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is a whack guy, <laughs> but he's, uh, he's, he's, he's clearly gone off the rails. But this this is where he started. You mentioned the Gollywogs, which, uh, which later became CCR. Um, yeah. You know, I, there's, there's plenty of, of, of people on this box set that, that left their mark later on in and and Roki Erickson, who sort of oh, yeah. um, in recent yeah. years made a made a comeback. You no, got, uh, Vanilla, I think Vanilla Fudge is in there too, aren't they? No, don't don't bl- I'm so. not sure. I don't think so. I do know that, uh, and I don't believe they're on on this set. But ZZ Top came out of one of these '60s Mo- garage moving, bands. Moving sidewalks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But and then and then as far as your question about about the punk part of it. Yep. I think the, the the punk ethos that that Nuggets uh, documents is the 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 energy. It's the right. not necessarily the stylistically. Yeah, it's not necessarily the uh, you know the, the loud, aggressive, simple guitar and the screaming vocals. It's it's that energy and that um, you know making it a 
annoys at the world, basically. Right, right. And you, you're right. You get bands like the Sonics and the Wailers and the Monks, who, who definitely have those, those sounds that punk rock would pick up on. Right. And you know, having having to uh, to mention my my local area, I gotta say that the uh, the um, Rationals are on this box set covering the the Kinks, and they were a local Ann Arbor band. Okay. And their uh, their lead singer Scott Morgan's a guy that I see around town every uh, once course, in a while. Of course, yeah, yeah. I was I was trying to remember the name. I thought, yeah, because I've been reading about. Um reading about them within the uh, Iggy Pop biography I've been yep. reading. He was yeah. in a band called Sonic's Rendezvous Band, which was Fred Sonic Smith from the MC5. Oh, yeah. yep. And uh, the, the Rationals are most notable because they did a cover of the song Respect by Otis Redding, yep. which was a local hit. And that wound up on local radio, and Aretha Franklin's manager heard that, and that's where the impetus for her to record her version came from. Nice. Local, local boys inspired Yep. Um, so, I, also, as far as this set goes, it's beautiful. I mean, the presentation, the artwork, the the liner notes, it's it's just it's immaculate. It is. No, I completely agree. Um, that's uh, you, you know when you're when you're forking over your hard earned for um, for this box set, you're really getting something special. And I mean, it comes back to what we we're starting at, talking about at the beginning of the show. You know, you were saying, Eric, that you know the box set as we know it may sort of cease to exist and that's a real shame because you know even though essentially we buy the music we buy this collection for the music but there is something wonderful about being able to sit back and read the history of bands you might not know absolutely anything about and it's yeah it's it's you're really getting something uh, quite precious here something quite valuable you just can't do that with, uh, with your downloads but that's a topic for another day no doubt um, I'll, I'll just mention uh, a couple of other tracks that um, uh, I really dig um, out of that. I've gone and mentioned a few, but um, one of my favourite songs on this is uh, from a group called The Remains, uh, a song called Don't Look Back, which to me is like a real Rolling Stones rave. And actually, I'm pretty sure I've even heard that here on Golden Oldies Radio. Um, mm -hmm. Not that much, but it must have achieved some sort of... Uh, uh, worldwide success, or because you know, as I said, heard it here, and um, an obvious Beatles, early Beatles um, ripoff from a group called the Knickerbockers, a song called Lies. Now I've heard a compilation of the Knickerbockers, and I have to say that they really only had the one song in them. There was not much else on that compilation that impressed me, but um, Lies I've always had a uh, a bit of a fondness for. So, uh, but yeah, no, a lot of really great uh, stuff, and oh, of course you'd never get a band. Nowadays, like the Elastic Band, um, <laughs> writing a song called Spaz, that would just not wash, oh, yeah. I don't think nowadays. So, but yeah, a lot of a lot of great stuff. Strict Nine by the Sonics. Um, oh yeah, yeah uh, really some some cool stuff. If if you're out there and you've you've heard of you've heard of Nuggets, but haven't sort of um, worked out whether to go out and uh, buy yourself a copy, just do it. This is really one one box set that's uh, well worth owning. Alright, uh, I think we're on to Michael. Michael Alrighty, well I've, I've, I'm surprised you haven't done this one already, Morris, but um, and I, I don't actually own many box sets, but the one of the, I think the second one I bought was the, the Springsteen Live. I, and I have got that. 
<laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Um, but in, I came. Well, two things. I, 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 you know, we've had this discussion before, but I was not a Springsteen fan for the early records. But I'm, and I'm, I'm interested in the other guys in Australia that I, I really, my memories of hearing Springsteen's tunes in Australia was Man from Man's Earth Band. Right. Yes. And and the and the first couple of albums, I really struggled with the the arrangements of of the the first couple and. I, you know, I like the songs, but I really, really struggled. And and when I decided to to buy this box set, a, a mate of mine actually had it and it played me quite a bit of it. And I really loved the sound of the live records. And I, and I, I didn't like the sound of the studio albums. And I've I've since bought them all and gone back and and learned to love them. But it was really very strange. So and and I must uh, also inform you that I'm very happily a uh, a ticket holder, Morris, to go and see. Uh, Go and see Bruce when he no, comes to Adelaide for the first time. Ah, so. uh, yeah, good on you. This is the first Bruce tour uh, to Australia that I'm not attending. I sort of figured, well, you know, I, I, I did my dash earlier on this year. was not terribly happy with the concert I went to. So I thought, uh, I, I know Jeff, our, um, our good comrade in arms, who unfortunately uh, couldn't join us due to um, technical hitches. Uh, uh, Jeff Smith, he um, said to me, "Why aren't you going? You know, chances are, you know, he's only doing two shows. It's not going to be a, a wrecking ball promotional show. He might actually play the stuff that you want to hear." But I think, no, I think that's it. I'm not. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Nebraska. I'm, I'm guessing there's not going to be too much of that happening. But oh, yeah. <laughs> John, but, are um, you going? Of course. Dumb yes. question. Bruce Springsteen was um, reciting the phone book. I'd probably go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think um, um, Michael brought up a good point. I think um, Live 75, 85, it's probably known for it was the box set that actually captured the sprawling nature of the live shows. And I think that's where it won over some people that you know, might have been teetering on the brink. And I can certainly understand, although you know, one of the one of his early albums is probably my favourite, The Wild and the Innocent, The E Street Shuffle, but Hallelujah. I can certainly understand a certain amount of inaccessibility and maybe lower production values, even extending obviously to the wall of sound um, that he that he did with Born to Run. Yeah. Now the uh, the version of Rosalita on that uh, live box set from The Wild, The Innocent, The E Street Shuffle, it, it just live it becomes this gigantic beast it's his introduction of the band and mm. you know, introducing the, you know, the champion of the world must i say his name and um yeah no that that if for nothing else that box set is uh, fantastic to have for, uh, for that song i remember I, actually I, I sorry sorry and I, I also agree with what we were talking about before that you know the, the some box sets you go back to and listen to over and over again and some you don't well you mm. know and this is a, a classic example of one that i go and listen to over and over again like the and you know the rave that uh, bruce does before the river just i can listen to that over a, and over again it's a great story he's he's always been a great storyteller yeah um i remember the day actually that that came out uh, there was a, a store in melbourne at the time uh called alan's music and um the day it came out, I, I went in at lunchtime, I think it was you know, on, on my work lunch break, and there was maybe about 40, 50 people standing in line, each with a copy of the five album box set under their arm. You know, I, I think within days, 
well, after the first publishing, no one wanted it. It was like, you know, everyone had to have it at the beginning and that was it. Um, it didn't have much of a uh, shot. It was like this big flashing burning star, and, or shooting star, I should say. Uh, and people got it in the first couple of days and everyone who wanted it had it after those first couple of days. But, but yeah, I, I know that uh, myself and a few friends were playing it continuously for quite a while. And I think, Michael, that album, probably like Biograph, maybe even more so than Biograph, um, was the first or, you know, one of the examples of a box set that actually sold in really decent units, quite a number of units. I mean, look, he was he was just coming off the success of that world tour and Born in the USA, which, you know, everyone yeah. who had never been a Bruce Springsteen fan before had latched on to. So, you know, that was the if that box set had come out prior to Born in the USA, it wouldn't probably have sold in those numbers absolutely so john your um the next okay, this one i'm gonna i'm gonna cheat a little and um i know it's definitely not a box set but it's an anthology okay. and it's one of my um go-to anthologies and i'll be interesting to um get all the guys opinion on this band but it's just an absolute uh, incredible collection of singles of a band in the 90s that just didn't quite make it i, I think they you know, had a certain amount of success, and it's Buffalo Tom's uh, A-Sides, or sometimes known as Asides. I don't know whether anyone uh, has ever, um, whether you, anyone's ever really come across Buffalo Tom or know them that well, but it's a great little anthology of basically the, all their singles throughout the 90s. Right. I love Buffalo Tom, actually, because... Um when they came out with the the bird, what was it the bird, bird brain album? Yeah. Or uh, yeah, that was fantastic. And I mean, they came out of the same uh, scene that uh, Jay Massis did because exactly. Massis actually recorded. Uh, well, he's very, he's very the, mentor of, of, of them. Right, because right, I, I think they went to the they went to the same college, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. But then there was the album. Uh, oh, what was it? The tail tail lights fade was on the second album. Uh, what was the one oh, with the Aboriginal dude sitting Sleepy on the front? Sleepy-eyed. Yeah, that was a wicked album too. I mean, yeah. So I just, it's just one I thought if, if you haven't checked it out, and Morris, if, if you don't know them, I think I think they'd appeal to your musical sensibilities. I think you'd okay. really... Just honestly, one incredibly indie rock. Indie rock, though, with a lot of hooks. Right. Uh, what would be the best way to describe them, Tim or Eric? They're a nice, they're a nice balance. They're a nice balance between yeah. being a little, little crunchy, but with really, really great songwriting. And uh, trying to think of the guy's name, Bill, uh, their singer. Uh, he's got a really good voice to him, and, and I mean, they in the lyrics Jank like he's Jankowitz. A, yeah, Jankowitz. That's it. Yeah, Bill yeah. Jankowitz, and like they're really, it's a really good songwriter, and they really have a lot of hooks, and it's you know, it's crunchy enough to appreciate on on a volume level, but it's it's really it really has substance there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, very good songwriters. Um, they never quite made it, uh, Morris. They disbanded, I think, before the '90s was out, and then they've reformed uh, occasionally, like everyone does, I suppose, occasionally over the last half decade or so. Right. And they actually played here in Sydney and I'm assuming Melbourne as well. About I only saw them about four or five years ago at uh, the Metro Theatre here in Sydney. Right. No, quite good. They're a three-piece Morris, pretty much um, power rock, or you know, a little bit of a little bit of a punkiest, 
not quite punk aesthetic, but um, I think they're out of Chicago. And it's just a really, it's just a, it's, it's something like, it's two discs, it's an anthology, it's they're, mostly their singles, it's about 20 tracks, and there's hardly a bad track on it. And I, I uh, recommend it to our listeners that um, it's one really worth giving a go. I've written down the name Buffalo Tom A-Sides. Yeah. All right. I'm going to search that one out. And and I think, and to Tim's point, they've, they've probably unfairly, um, I guess through Jay Mascus's mentoring of them, they were often referred to around the traps as um, Dinosaur Junior Junior. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Okay, Tim, your, um, your next choice. All right. My next choice is uh, kind of obvious for a lot of reasons, but I mean, if there was one box set, and I mean, sure, with Nuggets, when you guys were talking about, uh, you know, the varied, the varied uh, artists on, in the compilation there and, you know, the wide range of sounds, you know, that's what I would consider to be a party box set to me. Yep. I could, you know, I can sit oh, back yeah. and drink beer and listen to the Nuggets stuff for sure. But something that would cover such a wide range of people, varying tastes, to me, there's only one definitive box set that is what I would consider to be the party box set. And you couldn't go wrong with putting this on and getting everybody up off their ass. And and I guess you guys might kind of guess what I, where I'm going with this. Disco. Uh, well, he, he was before Disco. I was going to say uh, James Brown, Start Time. Wow! I have that on cassette, I think. This uh, this box, man, I mean, this is it. I mean, you know, it, there's so much history in this box, it's not even funny. I mean, and it's not even about James. It's about, you know, like you look at you know, the careers of like Bootsy Collins and Maceo Parker and like right. everybody that was a part of his band. Yep. I mean, everybody that made James James. I mean, he, he was just a conductor. He was, you know, he had the golden throat, sure. But, you know, it's an amazing, um, and again, it goes back to like the Taj Mahal box that I was talking about, about, you know, seeing the beginning of a career, you know, and I mean, James Brown with Motown and then all the way up to, you know, the end, you know, it, it's it's just it's just incredible to see such a wide range with that box set to me. The thing and, I like and, about and, that box set is that all the songs on there are the longer versions because like most of right. the compilations they're like right. you know, the, the two three minute version of right right right. And that's else. what I was that's why I was going to say that this is the party box set too. Yeah, yeah. Because when you when you when you get into your drink when you get into your cups man you can just put this thing on and once lick and stick kicks in. You know, and then whatever, and you start shake your moan and make, uh, you know, and you just get going, man. Like it's like, and and it's the extended. It, it just it just rolls on, right? And that's why, like, you know, and it's funny because it, it's just like I've actually used this box as a litmus test in the past. You know, when I used to have parties, and I'd throw this on at about you know one a.m. when everybody's uh, fairly greased. And within a half an hour, man, everybody's just vertical, you know, like everybody's just up up and moving, you know, and, and, nice. and it's amazing. It's amazing, man. And, and, you know, I would say like there's it doesn't have everything that James has ever done. I mean, there, you know, and of course, 
he's one of those artists where it's almost damn near impossible to, to collect James Brown, to, to have the definitive collection. But this is close. This is right. this is close, you know. Yeah, it's an, uh, it's an excellent set. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, the next set, I'm trying to sort of think which one I want to talk about. I've got a, got a couple. Um, but, uh, okay, so the one, one I'll mention, and I'm pretty sure this is uh, one that... Um, You'd either have you'd have in some form or another, Tim. Knowing for a long while you had as your uh, Facebook icon Howling Wolf. So oh yeah, I have that to was talk, I have to mention um, I have to mention Chess Blues. Now yeah. um, this uh, there's I think quite a lot of uh, maybe, you know two three CD compilations where the Chess back catalogue has been licensed out to you know small companies probably coming out of America or out of Europe but um, this box set here is a real deal uh, I think there's also a couple of other box sets that they might have put out chess rhythm and roll and I'm not sure I think there might be like a chess jazz set put out I didn't even know for a long time that they had a um, uh, any uh, jazz material on their label but um, what they're most well known for is their uh, blues catalogue and um, this you're talking about party records and this is a party box set oh, yeah you've got you've got like you know all the all the really well-known ones um, you know your, your your howling wolves your muddy waters your John Lee hookers little Walter yeah yeah. Uh, Willie Dixon, Otis Rush, um, uh, and Little Milton. But then you know you got some you got some other uh, lesser-known uh, performers. You know Robert Nighthawk, uh, Babyface Leroy, uh, Memphis Slim, uh, Doctor Isaiah Ross with you know Doctor Ross's boogie. You know, just some really fantastic tracks here, um, and. Uh, yeah, this is this is one that you can just sort of you know put on, and at any party, and I, I reckon that uh, you'll get people up and up and vertical. Uh, I was gonna say, you know, that the problem um, you you gotta understand with box sets too is that you get a lot of people that are just these you know purists where they say, you know, you've got to have everything they've ever done on it, or I I'm not interested, you know, and and it's almost damn near impossible in a lot of cases to, you know, find old 45s or old test pressings and right. demos and studio like, you know, you, you can you you can do as good as you can, but you know, it it can't be definitive in many many cases, you know, and like with the chess uh, recordings with Howlin' Wolf, the only you know, and I'm not one of these snobs where you know I'm saying everything's got to be on there or forget it, but I do find like some of the chess recordings there are omissions. I mean, like for example, with the Howling Wolf box, yep. there isn't the the stuff on there with the the London recordings that he did with Clapton, right? You know, or there's Do the Do, and like there's some live recordings, famous live recordings of, of Wolf that are not on there. Yeah. Now, again, I could say like. Well, damn, then it's not a proper box set. What the <laughs> hell is wrong with chess? You know, like, what the fuck? Why would they put out some, some, you know, like, subpar product, you know? Yeah. No. No, because anybody, anybody that really loves Wolf is going to go out there and find that stuff. Right. 
I mean, if you love if you love the music, like this is another thing too. Very rarely do you get people buy box sets and they say, "Well, I've got everything here. I don't need to buy any more of this." No, you actually have people once they buy the box set, once they get to know that artist, they're saying, "Well, I've absorbed all this. Now I've got to find more of it." For sure, absolutely. And yeah, as you say, once you listen to this, you'd want to go out and search out those London recordings, right? Um, or or and you, whatever else. You know, Wolf there's one there. thing I wanted to say too here. Well, you know, before I forget, there's one box set that I own, believe it or not, that I won't listen to. Um, and this might come as a surprise to you, yeah. but it's uh, the box uh, the box set for the Funhouse recordings, the Stooges. Okay, was that? Well, because of the fact that, you know, they actually break down track by track by track by track. And it's multiple recordings of, you know, each of the you know, the tracks. And you, you can hear, like, things with keyboard, without keyboard, with alternate vocals, with like, Iggy doing it like this, Iggy doing it like that, you know. And it's just like, what's amazing is that when you realize, when you listen to Funhouse... How raw it sounds, and it sounds like Didis went in there, all kind of like right up off their ass, like drunk as shit or whatever, and just blasted it out. But they didn't. It was really intentionally. They had a game plan going in there to record Funhouse, and, and, and you know when you listen to this box set, you're like, holy shit! Like, you know, it, it almost gets to the point where it's monotonous. It just the tracks go on and on and on and on. So I've listened to p- bits and pieces of it, but I won't listen to it again because it's just like, okay, I would rather the end result than than I I know now what they what they went through to get to that to get to the end. I'd rather just listen to the end. Yep, yep. No, see what you're saying. All right, I think we're um, back to the start of the table. Uh, so, um, Eric. Yes. Well, there's no easy way to uh, I guess ease into this, but. Um, it's the Misfits coffin-shaped box set is is my yeah. next pick. So and we've talked a lot about about box sets that are compilations of things. This is the recordings of the Misfits from 1977 to 1983, with the exception of their Walk Among Us record. Um, it pretty much covers the, the the initial history of the band. Uh, once again, it's in a coffin-shaped box. It's red velvet lined. It's it's a real collector's piece. Um, this was also the first time that the proper Static Age album was released, which was their first record, and in my mind, maybe their best record. Uh, loud, fast, very 50s influenced, very UK punk rock influenced. Um, you know, one of just... Basically, for better or worse, one of the most influential punk bands of all time. Uh, it you know for a completist or for a fan, uh, this this is the definitive look at at a band like the Misfits. Now, other other bands that you know you would slot next to the Misfits, like the Cramps. I don't think they've ever had a proper box set, yep. or the Meteors. They've never had a proper box set. Um, you know, I don't know that the Damned have ever had a proper box set. Uh, so, for th- those not familiar with the Misfits, they they were uh, one of those punk bands that did very successfully um, evolve through the different eras of punk rock. Of the initial first first and into the second wave of punk rock, they started off as kind of a uh, 
an arty keyboard band, and then they became more of a straight-up rock, rock and punk band, and then finally they became a hardcore punk band. Okay. And uh, this has just got all the classic stuff. It's got the liner notes. It's got song lyrics. And the band's catalog had been tied up in an illegal wrangling for decades at the point that this came out. So it was a minor miracle that, that we even got it. Right. And I don't think that uh, you're ever going to see a set of re- official represses of the singles or anything like that. Okay. So is this, were you saying this is still in print or, or not? I believe it's actually might have gone out of print now that I take a look at it. Okay. But it, it, it's becoming highly collectible. And um, the Misfits, you know, they're, they're a strange band because people love them or hate them, but you can't deny their impact. And if, even if you've never heard one of their songs, you've most definitely seen the Crimson Ghost image, which they, uh, they, they co-opted from a 1940s uh, adventure serial. Okay. Um, you know, one of those serials that was shown before films, right? Right. In the in the fifties, yeah. Yeah. And uh, actually, I, I talked about that serial on a recent podcast called Monster Kid Radio. Uh-huh. So if you want to hear me go into the the whole story behind the the Crimson Ghost, you can do that there. Gonna have to do that. And um, Monster Kid Radio. Yep. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll let everybody know when that finally gets released. So Eric, their um the career path you described is quite interesting. It's almost. Uh, the reverse of a lot of bands, they'll start off hardcore punk and then go through yeah. explorations into the different genres. It's interesting, and I only I'm only look vaguely aware of the Misfits. And there was some something in recent months. I was going to actually invest in a Misfits something through, mm-hmm. and I can't remember what it is now. But I was you know reading a review of a review, and okay. um, you've certainly rekindled um, my interest with um, that eclectic career path. Well, it's it's so interesting too because the beginning of the Misfit stuff, you know, like Eric was saying with the keyboard stuff too, like they were influenced by stuff like that guys like Roy Orbison, you know, like they were influenced yeah. by a lot of the fifties, uh, you know, uh, Jerry yes. Lee Lewis, a lot of the original rock and roll, and the keyboard stuff too. It, when did they, it how long has their career been going? Like when did they sort of first start? 70, 70, 77 to, 80, no, 77 yeah. to 83 was the initial run. Yeah, and then right. after the box set came out in 96, they, the, uh, the original bass player and his brother who played in the later iteration of their first run uh, reformed the band with a new singer and a new drummer. And they did that for a couple of years and then that imploded and now it's just the bass player. Mm-hmm. Right. And Glenn Danzig was their lead singer, if I haven't said that. That's that's where people would... Uh, would yeah. no. And one of the things I can say is having run a horror record label in the 90s that we got so many demos or heard so many bands that were trying to be the Misfits, inspired by the Misfits, but it's the classic case of rather than taking their cues from the Misfits, they needed to do what the Misfits did and go back to Elvis and Roy Orbison and Johnny Cash and take right. their cues from that era of music. Right. So if you're, if you're looking for a place to start with the Misfits, uh, their Static Age album basically is where I would go. Right. And that's from that initial period, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, uh, Michael. Yeah. Well, my my next one is is I, I guess the first two that I talked about the Skogs one, you know, I bought because I had to own it. The the Bruce. One I bought because you know I'd heard some of it and just thought it was great. Um, 
and the next one was is um is the history of Motown. It's a four CD collection, and I bought that because simply you know to have CD recordings of all those great old tunes was just you know a convenient way to find all that stuff. And so this is Hitsville, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. And I, it's nice. it's the ultimate party. You know, as we were talking about before, it's the ultimate party CD. I remember when we. Did the road trip to come over when when I caught up with you? Um, I guess eighteen months ago, Morris. You know, we we played it all the way over to Melbourne, and it's it's one of those those box sets where you put it on, and as you say, it's party time, and it's right. because I think because because I didn't grow up with a lot of that stuff. You know, I knew all the songs, but it was it's really good to to know some more about it, and and a lot of the tunes I've. I'm sort of not familiar with the original, so you know the box set does sort of do, do different things, and I, you know, this is a great example for me of being able to sort of go back and and get some great music that that's sort of not so easy to get my hands on. So, right, yeah, now that's um, I don't have that particular compilation. I've got like a couple of other double CD Motown compilations as well as like individual favorite albums, but um, yeah, I, I imagine that that's. Uh, I got a lot of essential stuff. Was there a second Hitsville box? Does anyone know? I think what happened is they started putting out these box sets that were the uh, the complete singles issued in order. So you would get right. a set that was like you know 1962 and 63, and it would be uh, okay. all of the all of the singles that were issued. Yeah, they, they, did, that with, they did that with stacks as well, didn't they? Yes, they right. did. And I think I think VJ Records did the same thing. Right. Okay, no, no, that's a that's a great pick, Michael. That's, um, yeah, a lot, uh, I, I imagine there'd be a lot of really wonderful stuff. As I said, I've just got you know like the, um, uh, the the a couple of these double CD anthologies. I think you know called Gold, but um, I often find yeah, there's stuff left out of those. You know what you were saying before, Tim, that you've got to search out separately. But um, yeah, they right. certainly had that. That incredible sound. For like for the longest time, I sort of thought, mm, I guess I'm more of an Atlantic guy than a Motown guy. But the truth is, you know, it's bullshit. You know, I love them, love them both. You know, nearly equally. So to try and picture Morris, us the three grown men on a road trip heading to Melbourne, <laughs> all doing the actions in the car, and we did get some very strange looks. <laughs> I'd love to, I'd love to see you and and your travelling companions singing. You don't really love me. You just keep me hanging on. <laughs> and we didn't get picked up. We didn't get arrested. I'm, I'm amazed we didn't. Ah, <laughs> uh, nice. All right. Um, who's next, John? Okay, I'm going to talk about a couple of box sets that haven't come out yet. Okay. Um, one that's um, been in uh, production for probably five years to maybe seven or eight years. Is it ever uh, coming out then? Well, I don't know, and I just I guess I'll throw it out to the forum whether anyone knows of its um, any closer coming to fruition. Bacon Fat to Judgment Day. It's a um, box set of the early the band when they were the Hawks. Oh. It covers right. their, covers their early period. Um, Garth Hudson, <laughs> who I guess is um, as great a man as he is, he isn't necessarily known for his speed or decisiveness. <laughs> Um, has been has been working on it, and it's just one I'm absolutely fascinated with. It's, uh, word word about it came out, and there's been interviews mainly with Garth Hudson, and you know maybe it, maybe it, with Levon Helms, you know untimely death, 
it may right. stall, but I actually, what I felt it was more um, Garth, less Levon was the um, you know impetus behind it, and it was it was the showcase that era from Ronnie Hawkins through to Levon and the Hawks, yep. Yep. predating the uh, Basement Tape era. So that's John, that's I was going to say to you that apparently in the last couple of years there was talk with Ronnie of. Uh, there were actual being recordings of uh, Ronnie and the Hawks from Toronto from like the late 60s, early 70s, uh, you know, when Young Street was a strip, which was yeah, the main yeah. strip in Toronto. And uh, apparently there's recordings of those that are in the bag that they're working on being remastered. So I don't know if they're going to be part of this box set or not. But uh, I'd love to hear that because mm. those guys, those guys played all around my neck of the woods. Like my yeah. mom and dad saw Ronnie and the Hawks and like all they used to play like uh, down at Lake Erie at the beach they'd play like uh, uh, vacation areas like oh yeah like they used to play everywhere yeah so I just thought I just thought look rather than talk about say an obvious one which you know I, I might have otherwise like the um, came out in 2002 the remastered the last waltz right which was quite um, you know came out there was, there was a lot of uh, production effort put into it by Robbie Robertson, and yeah, you know, the sound was you know infinitely better than the um, original release, and we had some extra tracks. You can get that now very, very inexpensively. I think the the four CD box set. I yeah, it's amazing. Isn't it? Basement discs for about thirty dollars. And and one that I'm not again um, this one I'm, I haven't even got a. Um, a bead on it, but I've just I've just sort of heard on the periphery that um, there may be a um, Astral Weeks expanded edition coming out. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> oh. I, I I was going to say I um I believe that well I, not being so sure what's on um, the official box set that may or may not eventuate, but. Um, there is a uh, series of discs of you know, ROIOs called Crossing the Great Divide, uh, which may have a lot of the material that may end up on the official. Yes, for sure. Set. I've, I've had that for uh, many years, so like a yes. companion piece to the uh, Bob Dylan genuine bootleg series uh, bootlegs that I was mentioning, and I know that there's a lot of Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks stuff on them. Yeah, one set. would think that um, those recordings and, you know, their famous Port Dover 1964 um, right. recording that, you know, what's one of the few that came through with, you know, a semblance of reasonable quality. I assume they'd be the source material, but but some of the interviews I've read, it, uh, it may be some really um, obscure stuff, you know, hopefully things that we don't know about. Yeah. That's funny because I was actually back in Canada a couple of weeks ago and I was actually in Port Dover. Oh, nice. Yeah, and every time you go down there, it's just a little tiny beach town in Lake Erie, you know, that, you know, it's only really kicking during the summer, and or else Friday the 13th, they get big biker rallies there Friday the 13th, but people that live in the city, they know, well, you know, um, actually, Morris, I've, I've mentioned about um, Fred Eaglesmith. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, he's from Port Dover. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, he's from the area, yeah. Nice, yeah, yeah that's right, you sent me a... a few YouTube links there was some yeah, yeah some incredible material from that guy yeah um, all right uh, Tim I think you're um, 
You're up next. Oh, sorry. Hang on, John. You said you had a couple of box sets you wanted to mention. No, just the, the, that's just the the. Um, I just thought I'd mention briefly that one that um, hasn't come to fruition. Uh, bacon fat to Judgment Day, the complete said, last, the complete last waltz. And it sounds like, um, or at least our host is our good host isn't a fan, but the expanded Astral Weeks album. I look, no, I'm a fan of Astral Weeks, but I, I think possibly for the same reasons that um, Tim might have mentioned before, why he doesn't want to hear, or why, why he's not that crazy about Funhouse, the complete sessions. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I, I don't mind hearing outtakes and things across a career, or at least a part of an artist's career, but. To hear you know 500 Doodle, takes doodling, of the same perhaps. song um right I don't, I, I don't mind like you know here's one doodle from the session or you know a yeah, couple exactly. of doodles from a session but to hear here's the complete thing every damn time that the i mean it seems bizarre because you know as legend has it the the album was recorded in two eight-hour sessions so you hardly think it's um source material that would um propagate a box set but hey yeah, they, I don't think there's going to be uh, much variation in arrangement. I mean, that's the sort of thing I'd be looking for. Mm. Um, okay, so uh, Tim. Well, John, you were you were saying earlier something about not choosing the obvious and going with something a little different. Well, I thought I'd mix it up a little and uh, go with something that you know I I've gone back to a number of times and I quite enjoy, just because. Uh, well, not only just for childhood memories, but just because it's just really amazing art. And that is, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the works of Carl uh, Stalling. Carl Stalling was a conductor, and he was a composer that uh, put together all the classical music for the Warner Brothers cartoons. Right, yes, yep. yes, yes. Right. Well, they initially uh, released... Um, one CD called the Carl Stalling Project, and it was the first CD, and it was uh, basically studio work that he did, and outtakes and everything from some of the most famous cartoons that you know you it, it you could hear this stuff and you could just see it in your mind. You could just close your eyes and see the cartoon in your head, absolutely follow along with the music, and you knew it. And it was just incredible to me the first time that I actually would pop on the CD how it would just the images could just be there without being there just by listening to the music you know and then then they came out with the second disc the second carl stalling disc but then later they put it out as a box and it's called the definitive carl stalling project and it was disc one and disc two hmm. and again it's got demos of you know leading up to different things that like uh the Bugs Bunny march and the different things like it—it—it's it, um, experimentation, and you can see where they're—they're they're, you know kind of uh, scratching out rhythms and different things, and and you can see how they're they're working. It—it's it, almost like they're you know again like you were saying like with the Funhouse sessions you know how it can be plotting when you're seeing somebody do it again and again and again. But at, on, in the other regard, it can be absolutely fascinating when you're watching someone start from scratch. And come up with like a little kind of skeleton rhythm, and then build build around it, you know. And then it's amazing how you can listen to something actually come to life, and something that has so much meaning to you as a kid when you see the cartoon, and then when you when you actually realize it come it came from some guy whistling or humming, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and then that's where it came from, you know. But there's another guy too, Raymond Scott. 
who was really famous, who did many of the Warner Brothers cartoons as well. And I think there's a Raymond Scott box as well. And Scott was there's famous a, for... Go ahead, Eric. I, was, I would say, I, I don't know about the box set, but there's a, um, there's a set that's from his uh, electronic music experiments. It's called the Manhattan, Manhattan Research. Here's right, it's, right, it's right. Just, is that the one you're I've talking about? Yeah, I think it's yeah, but I think there was something like for the it was a compilation of of his his experimental stuff, but it was also like the uh, the cartoon recordings he did and the the, uh, the compositions he did as well because he did that famous uh, the powerhouse, you know that dun 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 dun. Yeah, well, but I mean, I I really love um, the Stalling box set. For the fact that it comes with a booklet, it explains how he started with Warner Brothers, the people who he played with, uh, where he got his inspirations, his ideas, and fleshing out the characters, and how he actually had specific instruments related to specific characters in the cartoons. You know, where Bugs Bunny always was more of a you know, of a violin fiddle guy, and like Porky Pig was more of an oboe guy, and and how they had different things that would come in and it was just it's just fascinating as a historical document i think it, it's really brilliant and you can see where guys later on like uh, john zorn and a lot of the more you know or guys like um, you know uh, thurwell a uh, fetus jg uh, thurwell you know guys that uh, are really experimental composers how they really were influenced by guys like stalling and guys like raymond scott and the box is just amazing to kind of put on in the background while you're doing things and it's totally you know like all instrumental so it's just incredible how it, it, it's never really intrusive when you're listening to it. it it's just in the background and it's just it's just brilliant what's um, I was gonna is that a is that a fairly old box set mm. um I think it actually came out in the late 90s Okay. So yeah, it's yeah, I'd say well, probably no, actually the first CD came out at about 93 and I think the second one came out at about 95 and then the box came out at about 98. Yeah. Okay. Okay. When was he alive, uh, Timo? Is he still with us? No, Stalin's been gone for ages. He's been yeah. gone for ages. I mean, like he was around in the 30s and 40s. Okay. And uh, okay. he was still recording up into the 50s. But it's amazing how like, you know, you look at all the, the digital wizardry and all the toys that we have to screw with today and mm -hmm. how the overdubs and this and that and the other thing. But when you really look at guys like Morricone and you look at guys like Stalling and, and people who actually played to mute, uh, played to film. I mean, like they, you know, in a lot of cases they were watching the film and there was no sound to the film while, while they were actually playing to it. And that's how they recorded a lot of it. It just blows my mind. Right. Uh, do you know if he, um, what much else he did outside of the uh, Looney Tunes cartoon, like well, for, film, for film? Not, there wasn't very much as Stalling did. I mean, he was kind of, that was his bread and butter. But, um, you know, there was a few things he did, but it, it wasn't, but it wasn't enough to really make note of. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, we'll go through my next box set, and then we'll maybe have one more go around. Um, so this is. Morris, would you would you find me um, bad if I said good night now? Oh, I'd 
find that disgraceful and disgusting. Just I'm just, I'm, I've, I've got about a 5 a.m. start, and oh, I figure if okay. I go now, I've got, I can get five hours of kip. Okay, no worries. All right, well, um, thanks very much for uh, uh, being a part of it, uh, John. Really enjoyed it, and congratulations on the 50th episode. My pleasure. Oh, Many happy returns, Rick, for today. Take care, John. And yeah, Tim, thanks for great having thanks you back. Um, back. It's great having you back, Tim, in our hemisphere. And uh, Michael, it's uh, nice to uh, meet you. All the best, Mike. Take care. All the best, guys. Okay. Speak to you soon, yeah, John. Thanks, Morris. Thanks, Cheers. John. Take care. Bye. Yep. Bye. All right. Well, we'll. Um, uh, where was I going to? Okay. So um, the next set I was going to um, talk about. I think it's it's comprises of. Uh, four CDs, uh, two singles and a double, which I think might have come out separately, but then they um, brought it all together as one big box. And it's called Next Stop Soweto. Uh, and each CD covers a different aspect of South African music uh, from, uh, I, I guess, from the early 60s through to uh, the early 80s. So volume one covers, um, this, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but it covers what they called Mabakanga, uh, which I think was the prime influence for uh, Paul Simon when um, he uh, he heard, I think it was a, a cassette called Gumboots or something like that, Township Jive, and he went off to record Graceland. So um, this first album covers, um, covers music by bands that inspired him to do that. So... Uh, the, you know, I think like a couple of the bands that I remember um, that he mentioned are on this set. So uh, uh, Malatini and the Queens uh, and the uh, the Mahotella Queens. Um, I know that actually you you mentioned the Mahotella Queens. I saw them in 2007. They played oh, at the Womack wow. Festival in Singapore. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, how many uh, how many people do you know if it was like an uh, an original lineup or? or... Um, I'm not exactly sure, but there was there was like four or five ladies up front, and they had a band of about eleven or twelve. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, look, the the music on this is, is just I, I, we keep, we've mentioned a couple of times party music, and this really is great party music, and it's all it's also very very diverse. Um, and the thing is, it, it's incredible that this music got uh, brought up at all out of such dire circumstances i mean um uh, I, I think it was in the, there's some really incredible liner notes in um each one of these cds and i think in uh the 50s when apartheid became formal government policy uh you know musicians uh up until then had been sort of you know practicing a wide range of uh, music styles a lot of them influenced by american styles but also bringing in uh, a lot of their own takes on it, uh, but when uh, apartheid sort of you know became a formal policy, and you know the government of the day sort of didn't want uh, any of the American influence to be uh, brought in on the local populace, so it was harder for uh, for the local musicians to hear what was going on overseas. So they they sort of relied a lot more. They didn't want to sort of rely on their traditional folk styles, but they sort of brought a little bit of that in. Uh, a little bit of what they remembered from uh, the American styles and just brought it all into this one big soup style. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to describe to anyone who hasn't heard it, but I think the 
thing that sort of struck me, uh, you know, originally while listening to uh, you know, Graceland all those years ago, and now listening to this original source material, is, is um, uh, you know, just the tightness of rhythm sections, and and uh, there's a lot of guitar rhythm work. There's no lead work. A lot of it's um, uh, very tight staccato uh, guitar work, which seems to be played on the high end of uh, of the guitar, and it's you know very recognisable. Um, but yeah, some some uh, you know, and the harmonies. The harmonies are not what you would hear on. Um, on American R and B, say for instance, it's uh, it really was something very, very unique. Uh, so you know that first that first album covers up uh, the Mbukanga styles, and you know, a couple of the highlights is um, uh, a tune called Kuyu. I'm not even pronouncing this. Uh, Kuyu Hanjiwa by uh, a group called Espeliso and his Super Seven. It's just a really great little piano melody. Um, and it's just, as I, I, I said, I just, this is something that I come back to, but I haven't found myself sort of like taking note of many of the groups to sort of follow up so much because so much of this is really hard to get. With one exception, I followed up on a group calling themselves the Heshu Beshu group, and they put out an album called Armitage Road. And the front cover of Armitage Road, like a lot of other uh, groups had done this, was uh, a parody or, or or paying tribute or whatever you want to, to the Beatles Abbey Road but it, even there it was making its own political statement so rather than having uh, four British men who had conquered the world and were all filthy rich and walking across uh, a, a level crossing in St John's Wood London it had uh, four or five guys crossing the street uh, or uh, crossing the dust path in this really poor little uh, South South African township, and it was you know making making the little political statement just from uh, the front cover. The music contained therein uh, is you know there is some R&B, some jazz, uh, and, but you know all really really fascinating stuff. And the second CD in the box set uh, covers it's called Soul Town R&B Funk and Psychedelic Sounds from Townships 1969 to 1976 and you know you can tell there's there's a smattering of uh, American influences and there's a smattering of uh, their own styles I mean it's sort under this great umbrella but but there's enough diversity to keep it interesting and the last disc uh, is called um, Giants Ministers and Makers Jazz in South Africa and I mean, there's there's stuff in there. It's in the in the the era that this is covering. It's not necessarily breaking new territory like what uh, their American counterparts like. You know, this is there's nothing in here that sounds like uh, it's pushing down doors like John Coltrane was doing or Miles Davis was doing. But um, just the fact that they were able to put this great music together at all uh, is just as heroic. Um, right. To my to my way of thinking, because it was so oppressive, and the liner notes state that some of these musicians were, because they were forced out of the cities and they had to play in these little townships. There was one guy who said that they placed like in some little town hall or some little community hall, uh, and the soundtrack to them playing the music was Switchblade Knives. It was really really dangerous. Just making it through a gig was a heroic act. Um, so. Really, there's, oh. there's just so much on here that it's interesting historically, but it's also musically really, uh, really wonderful stuff. So um, 
I, I'd highly recommend that. Next stop, Soweto. And I think I picked that up fairly inexpensively uh, locally from a, a label called Strut. So, um, yeah, search that one out. Alright, I think we'll, we'll, we'll do one more go around if everyone's up for that. Sure. Okay. Uh, okay. So, um, Eric, your, your final choice for the evening. Well, it's no surprise. We, we talked about the, uh, the Nuggets box set being kind of the, to me, at least the pinnacle of what a box set should be. So the end of that line to me is the Children of the Nuggets box set, right. which is the original artifacts from the second psychedelic era, 1976 to 1996. Now, there's a lot of great stuff on this box set, and for one or two tracks alone, it's worth seeking out. However, I will say that it is kind of less focused than the the earlier Nuggets installments. Nuggets 1, which we talked about, and Nuggets 2, which is also a great set, but it's the, whereas Nuggets 1 is North America, U.S. focused, the Nuggets 2 box set was basically uh, the rest of the English-speaking world and then some non-English-speaking uh, areas. But Despite its flaws, the Children of the Nuggets box set um, does a good job of giving an overview of what the the music that was on the Nuggets, and you know, obviously in a world that Nuggets had been released, at least the the initial album uh, spawned. And there are bands on here like the Dukes of the Stratosphere, who were oh, a yeah. side project of uh, XTC, the Liars, the Bangles. Um, Flesh Tones, the Sponge Tones, the Rain Parade, who are a, a, a band that were lumped into the Paisley Underground scene of the 80s, which we've talked about previously on, on the show. Yes. And I believe that's a scene that deserves its own box set. Uh, the Lime Spiders are on here. Yep. The, uh, the Hoodoo Gurus, and that's just disc one. From there, you get the Cramps, you get the Long Riders, you get the Laws, uh, you know, 90s. 90s power pops, 80s neo garage stuff, um, just all kinds of of crazy uh, and not so crazy garage inspired, punk inspired, 60s pop inspired tracks. Uh, special shout out for the Nashville Ramblers and their power pop gem trains, which is just one of the great singles of all time. Uh, Teenage Fan Club, The Last, uh, The Smithereens. Uh, DMZ, a, a lot of cult bands and some bands that also had some mainstream success at one point in time are on this set. Uh, the Nomads from Sweden. Uh, so there, there are a few international acts on here, for sure. Like on the Cosmonauts, who I believe were a Finnish surf band. Uh, yeah, it's just it's it's a great solid set of of uh, music that's trying to pull together the. The bands that were inspired by the, by the first era of the psychedelic music, and to me, uh, this might be the last of the the the, the great box sets that Rhino released okay. before they they got sold off to corporate interests. There have been a few uh, volumes of Nuggets since since that happened that were oriented towards scenes, and those are kind of hit and miss, and they have some cool packaging. But but overall, I would say that that uh, if you got Nuggets and you loved it. And you got Nuggets too, and you loved it. You will probably dig the Children of the Nuggets. And now I'm just waiting for, and I don't know this will happen as we talked about the uh, the end of the box set era. I would love to see the grandchildren of the Nuggets, and I have some ideas for what could be on that because the the scene that I was tangentially involved in in the end of the '90s 
really was the the scene that was inspired by by the original 60s nuggets but also the the bands that are on this children of the nuggets set so nice anybody check this out anybody know any any of these bands well hoodoo gurus are a bit of an institution here i mean uh, they, they had big mainstream success in, in mm-hmm. what's a lime spider uh oh gee never heard of them yeah, yeah, me either. They're an Aussie band from. They're, they're on the they're on the do the pop compilation. I'm pretty sure as well. Oh yeah, yeah they yeah. were covered covered by the Goo Goo Dolls on their big hit album, um, Boy Named Goo. Yeah, no, I saw. I actually saw the Spiders uh, back in '86 when they were actually the the Gurus brought them to Canada, oh, nice. and uh, they were actually played my university outside. That, so you, did, so you didn't get ACDC, but you know. No. Okay. Well, what was it called? Enter, enter the cave, or oh shit, the Lime Spiders album. Uh, forget the name of it now, but I have to go back and find. It. I still got that vinyl somewhere. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, Michael. Your right. um, mine. All right. My last one is um, is called Tangents by Tangerine Dream. I, nice. I um. Confession that. When I was at, when, when I was at school, when everyone else was listening to the Eagles and Meatloaf, you know, I I was cutting around a uh, a vinyl copy of Phaedra or Force Majeure or something, so I, and I I loved those guys so much, and I um in the eighties I sort of lost lost track of them a bit, and they they're one of the bands that even even now they put out two or three albums every single year. It's just crazy. A lot of it's soundtrack stuff, but it's they just put out so much material, and and this this compilation this box set was from from the eighties, and I, I was thinking oh, when I saw it, I thought oh, you know I, I didn't have a lot of the albums that, that a lot of this stuff was taken from. I thought oh, this is you know I'll I'll grab this and um, and not be uh, you know save me buying all the others, but it had the opposite effect that I loved it so much that I. I went out and bought the individual albums, but it's um, right. I have to play them in uh, when uh, when there's no one else around. I, I did uh, make the mistake of putting it in the car when uh, when my good wife was in the car once, and she, after about thirty seconds, she threatened me with physical violence if I ever put this <laughs> crap on again. <laughs> wow. But they're, 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 you know, this, go on, go on, Tim. No, it's funny because, I mean, like, you know, they're not that repellent. I mean, like, you know, like, it's almost like, you know, that's driving music, you know, like, and, and it's funny, too, because, like, my, my introduction to Tangerine Dream, what I remember is that um, back in the early 80s when I was in university, when I first went to university, I was uh, trying to basically uh, drum up a radio show, and before they would let us actually get on air, they had a test booth. And you go into the test booth, and you would basically record a tape or a cassette, and uh, an eight-track. Actually, you would record like half an hour eight-track set, and then they listen to it and say, "Yeah, you know, you've got it down pat. Now you can go on air." So I used to look at all the vinyl that they had behind me, and one day I pulled out this album called Le Park, mm. and uh, I put that on, and I was just like, "Man, like this, this is really uh, this. This will put you in the green zone if you know what I mean." <laughs> but it is, yeah. it is great driving music, isn't it? I, I do it totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. So, but it, um, but it was great. It was great. Uh, you know, it's so funny because going going back to, uh, you know, 
I, I grew up in the punk era like Eric did, you know, and I you know, and I love the abrasive and um, loud, fast, you know, snotty stuff. But at the same time, um, we had those radio stations where you'd come home absolutely baked off your ass at 3 a.m. in the morning and you'd get into bed and then throw those big ball headphones on and the local uh, you know, radio station would be playing like one hour of like King Crimson or one hour of Super Tramp or one hour of, uh, you know, tangerine dream and you would just be gone like you would just you would just be like out out interstellar overdrive you're gone you know like and so i had i i developed an appreciation for a lot of the progressive stuff and a lot of a lot of electronic stuff uh well one one of the biggest uh green quote unquote green albums for me and for a lot of people like when i went to university was uh jean-michel jarre the oxygen album oh yeah Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that that was yeah that was one that really kind of put you out there and uh, put push you off the deep end so to speak. But yeah, Tangerine Dream they're they're phenomenal. I mean like they um, the Legend um, soundtrack. That's mm-hmm. another one that I really tell people you you you've got to go and listen to that. And and they're still going strong. That they they CD this year has got which is really different. It's got two female vocalists, which is just. You know, very strange to start, but also it's a, right. a uh, they've got Brian May playing guitar on it, so it's a great, wow. yeah, wow. it's awesome. So good. And, and how could I forget? How could I forget the one that really stood out head and shoulders too? Is this the soundtrack, The Thief? Yes, yes. Oh, that's Michael, Michael Michael Dream, yeah. that's yeah. phenomenal. That that's a killer album. I've actually got the vinyl for that. I picked up years ago as well. All right. Uh, he's left. With, uh, we've gone through. Um, uh, I've got oh, my last. So, ten, oh, yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I was going to say I'd like to dedicate this one to Eric because it's his <laughs> birthday today. And uh, thank you. As as we get older, uh, we all have a tendency to uh, get a little stiff. <laughs> so. Uh, I, I, I thought it would be appropriate that I would mention uh, one of my favorite box sets, and that's the Stiff Box. Ah, nice. Yeah, like Stiff Records, I mean, like, they were an anomaly. They were, like, one of the weirdest labels that come out of the 70s because Stiff, Stiff kind of covered such a wide umbrella of artists that were so different that it wasn't even funny. I mean... They, they covered everybody from, like, Uncle Ian Dury to The Dan to, like, Nick Lowe to Early Elvis, mm. Costello, you know? Madness. Like everybody. Madness, yeah. But they weren't, a, you know, but they weren't ska, they weren't punk, they weren't this, they weren't that. They they, they were everything, right? And, mm. I mean, to me, to me, Stiff was, like, the definitive label for that era, the New Wave era, when anything that was weird, it was Stiff. You know, or anything that didn't fit in anywhere else, it was stiff. You know, yep. or or if you're a little a little louder than everybody else, it was stiff. You know, and they had the greatest they had the greatest slogan for any label that I've ever heard. You know, if it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a fuck. <laughs> you know, I've always I still have a button, an original stiff but a records button that I got years ago at a record show, and I mean I'm I'm still proud to wear that. You know, but no, uh, the um, go ahead, Michael. I remember reading a great story about those days where they they threw all those guys on a train in the UK, like Ian Jury and, and Reckless Eric and all those guys, and, and toured them around the UK on a train. Imagine how much fun that would have been on that train. Oh, <laughs> much debauchery. And, you know, I, I just want to take this uh, 
I don't want to uh, I don't want to basically veer off here for a minute, but I just wanted to also take this moment to kind of uh, send out a rest in peace to Mick Farron because uh, Mick Farron was uh, one of the founding members of the Pink Fairies with Larry Wallace and Lemmy, and you know, and they were one of the artists that were on the Steph label as well. And Mick just died in July, and he died amazingly enough just after finishing a gig in London with his band, The Deviants. And he, he was only, I think, 60, 63 years old or 64 years old. But he died doing what he loved best, and, you know, rocking out. And he, he went out hard and, you know, so here's to you, Mick, you know. But anyway, he, he wrote, he also wrote, um, he wrote a number of Motorhead songs. And he wrote songs for Hawkwind, Lost Johnny. And uh, he, he, he was a real kind of a counterculture figure in England that always wound up popping up here and there and he was a lot like John Cooper Clark where you know he was a writer as well as an artist and um, and he was a poet and uh, he was a lot of things you know but but that was the beauty about Stiff Records is that Stiff Records they covered like like I'm saying like they they covered such a wide range of artists and everyone's saying well it's just too diverse but no like at that time there was people that really couldn't get representation or because of you know the 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 industry at the time, I think a lot of a lot of people were just either pub there were pub bands, there were too much pub, or there were too much punk, or there were too much this or too much that, and that's how they wound up on stiff. I mean, like for example, Ten Pole Tutor, you know, or or you get guys like you know, for example, um, you know, you get uh, Doctor Feelgood, you know, mm-hmm. pub rock. They were they were too I think they were a bit too aggressive or a bit too rural or a bit too gritty for any major labels to really approach them. So and Stiff said, No, no, we'll take you, sure, you know. So that's why I love the Stiff Box, is that, you know, it really represents an era and I mean I just it just fits. I mean anybody that did, doesn't know Stiff would look at the lineup and just say Holy shit, like the Pogues, Elvis Costello, you know, like Madness, like blah, 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 blah. Like, it's so weird, but, you know, but it just fits. Right, yeah. Uh, so um, I, I think that was run by uh, uh, Elvis Costello's original. W- w- was Jake Rivera like his original manager or something? Yeah, he was one of the, yeah. he was one of the co-founders of Stiff Records, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, no, that, yeah, that sounds like a box set I think I want to search. Uh, I, in fact, I'm pretty sure I've seen it somewhere else. It's actually hard to find now because it's out of print, the original box set that I'm got. I'm pretty sure I'd Is seen there... it years ago, but just you know, never picked up on it. But yeah, the, the diversity think... the diversity alone would be, uh, right. would have made it. A, so, so um, that's... Um, I think be, there's, uh, a, a, there. there's an edited one that came out now, um, and I think it's just a CD. Okay. But it's kind of a... It's kind of a uh, like I say, an edit of the original box, and but I think the box now is going for over a hundred bucks. Right. There, there is a newer version called the Big Stiff Box Set that. Right, that's the one print. I'm talking about. Well, this yeah. one's a four CD set that's from uh, 2007. Okay. So it's a it's a new iteration of it, and that's going for like thirty dollars here on on Amazon. So. Wow. Okay. That might be uh, that might be worth the purchase. I think. Actually, not that this is. I'll, before I sort of go into my final box set, I'd say probably the best bargain that I had was uh, 
from a few years ago, I remember you know, going away on holiday and every time I go away, I always take a copy of Uncut Magazine or Mojo just to sort of you know, relax with. I they, do too, man. <laughs> yeah, well, they, and I remember both um, Uncut and Mojo at the time had big articles on the reformation of the zombies because they were getting together to finally play Odyssey and Oracle live, you know, 40 years or so after they'd recorded it. And I'd been embarrassed, you know, really, now to think that um, uh, the only you know, knowledge that I'd really had to that point was, you know, she's not there and, you know, time of the season. So, you know, I was reading this article thinking, wow, this sounds like the band that I want to sort of um, find out more about. And I was looking on Amazon and I think their album, which was called uh, Zombie Heaven, or their box set called Zombie Heaven was $18. Odyssey and Oracle by itself was $15. So it was a it was a no-brainer. Um, I think for the first six to twelve months, so I couldn't get Odyssey and Oracle out of the CD player. So it was a while before mm. I sort of got through the rest of the box sets and some other great jewels in there. But um, Odyssey and Oracle is certainly an album that I try not to go terribly far away from. All right. So the final box set that I want to uh, bring up and you know. If you've listened to the show in the past or you've had conversations with me, this artist won't come as any surprise. Uh, uh, it's Richard Thompson. And he is a man who has, I think, well, last count, four box sets dedicated to him. And that's not even including anything with Fairport Convention. Now, the first time I actually bought anything to do with Richard Thompson was through a three CD set called Watching the Dark, put out on, I think, Hannibal Records and put together by, uh, I, I think, original um, uh, Fairport producer or manager, Joe Boyd. And I, for some reason, I, I think in Richard Thompson's circles, this box set is not held in high regard. And to this day, I don't know why. It's it's not run like in a chronological state and it's not run album by album but they they do something a little unusual they might like to four songs from a given period then they might sort of like jump 20 years and cover three songs from another period then go back 15 years and cover songs from another period so it's a little unusual in that regard but there's a really great mixture of of, um, of uh, songs and there, there's some live stuff on there that had hitherto been unreleased now I remember sort of you know hearing a lot about Richard Thompson on one of the radio shows here on the public radio station Triple R and I went into a booth at this uh, old CD shop and they play uh, I said I didn't care which CD they put in out of the threes because you know, I didn't know any of it this is back I think in 1990 and the first song I heard was a thing called Al Bowley's in Heaven and I couldn't care less what came after that. I was buying that three CD set just alone for that song because it was storytelling and musical beauty of the highest order. Uh, and it just got better after that. And I thought that that was you know, pretty high up. Uh, and the version that they have of, um, of uh, Shoot Out the Lights, it's a live version. Uh, is just absolutely phenomenal. And there's um, a song from, I think it's Capitol Records era, a live version song called uh, Can't Win, I think originally appeared on his Amnesia album. That's just, you know, it's, it's got, um, oh, I forgot, what was, uh, Michael helped me out, the drummer for uh, Cougar Mellencamp. Um, Aronoff? Kenny Aronoff? Kenny Aronoff. Yeah, the Ken Kenny Aronoff's playing drums on um, this version of Can't Win and, 
you know, real, as, as great as uh, Thompson's guitar solo is, and it just builds up and up and up. I think the star of that is Kenny Aronoff. Uh, just such a great hitter. Um, but yeah, it's just a marvellous box set. But that's not actually the box set I wanted to talk about. Um, so the other box sets that have come out, there's a Richard and Linda Live at the BBC box set, which came out uh, maybe about two, three years ago. That's got a DVD as well as three CDs. There's a more conventional, you know, sequential thing put out, I think maybe on Capitol Records, called Walking on a Wire. But the box set I want to talk about is one that's been put out I mean, it, with Richard's blessing, and they got through his archives, but this is essentially a fan put together box set through uh, an imprint called Free Read, and they specialise in a lot of British acoustic folk type material. And I think there's like a Sandy Denny box set and a Fairport convention and a whole range of other English folk stuff. But this is this is certainly not a box set for the beginner Thompson fan. You know, you'd be better off going with walking on a wire or watching the dark which are really really great introductions uh, but this is for the you know the, the Thompson fan who sort of wants you know maybe either everything or, or just or, or wants something a little bit more off the beaten path it's not perfect from a sound recording perspective in fact some of these songs actually sound like their bootlegs and and not terribly great bootlegs at that but this is something that if you're a diehard Thompson fan you need to have because the performances are the thing and they've sort of gone and made like a, a CD of, of um, Thompson doing covers you know both rock and roll covers and some stuff from his thousands of years of popular music so you got stuff from you know the 15th century or you know the Renaissance period or or uh, old Italian church music uh, mixed with um, Britney Spears whoops I did it again um, you've got uh, a, a CD called Shine in the Dark, epic live workout, so stuff with really great solos. Um, and, I mean, all these, uh, I think there's one CD, uh, The Essential Richard Thompson, Finding Better Words, which might have been songs and performances, live performances that were uh, voted on by members, paid up members of the Thompson or Fairport fan club. Um, yeah, there's just really so much wonderful stuff here, but once again, uh, if if you've not bought any Thompson before, then you'd do wise to uh, to search out the, the box sets I mentioned before, Watching the Dark or, or uh, Walking on a Wire, but um, uh, if you have uh, a, a good collection of Thompson stuff and you want more, um, then yeah, this is called RT. Uh, the life and music of Richard Thompson. I don't know whether you can buy it in the shops. I think you can only get it from the Free Read uh, website. But oh. yeah, really essential stuff. Really, really great. All right. Well, that's as much as um, I think we've got time for. Uh, otherwise, we'll be up till you know, well when um, when uh, John wakes up for his five o'clock <laughs> meeting. So he, he might be able to rejoin us. But no, I think. Um, you know what we should do? We, we we should we should stop and wake up at five, and then you know get John on and say, "Okay, John, it's your turn now." We we might be able to bring uh, might be able to bring Jeff on. You never know. Um, no, yeah. I, I I'm feeling really sad that uh, we couldn't bring Jeff in on this. So there was bound to be some technical hitch, but for the most part, we've got um, right. a couple of hours of uh, the rest of us talking, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm at this stage, I'm very, very happy considering the mishaps that we and had. No, and no one even mentioned the John Hyatt box. Oh, you! <laughs> oh my god, I lost the files! Where have they gone? 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, you bastard. The one, the one thing I wanted to say uh, before we sign off here tonight is that, uh, you know, it's always a it's always a pleasure, you know, and I really appreciate, you know, giving us the opportunity, Morris. And uh, for people out there who are probably, you know, uh, punching their keyboards right now and saying, no, you guys forgot this box, and oh, shit, how could you not talk about that box? Please, on the Facebook page for Love That Album, write them down, put them down, because I'm sure there's a lot that we obviously forgot about, you know, due to our old age and our senility <laughs> kick. Um, Actually, that's a really good idea when I... um. When I uh, plug the show on um, the usual Facebook pages, I will be asking the question. Please, you know, have it start a discussion on favorite. Right, because I, I think what's really cool is not so much the fact that we're sharing, you know, what we like, but I think that also, you know, I I'd enjoy on my end hearing what other people like as well beyond, right. you know, the the five of us here tonight. Yeah. I mean. Right. I just right. love to hear everyone else's opinions on what they consider their definitive box set and what you really should uh, throw your shekels towards. And yeah. I mean, here's one thing that we didn't talk about just briefly, but the idea that, you know, when you buy a CD, you really don't think about it that much because it's not that expensive. But when it comes to buying box sets, you've really got to consider what you're investing in because a lot of times yeah. they go up right. to 100 bucks to 150 bucks, whatever. Like that Beatles one. That came out a couple of years last year or the year back uh, two years ago oh, the, the vinyl stereo. The, yeah it's like holy shit 250 bucks 300 bucks no I'm making you know, it no, they, they yeah got, they got their shekels from me for the vinyl they got it for, from the original cd release and you know my old ears i won't i don't think i'd ever hear the uh, sonic difference right. so I, I'm, I'm content with what right. I got so, nah. so I'm just saying that you know you're really you're really more careful when it comes to box sets about whether right. or not you buy them or not so I'm, I'm i'm anxious and i look forward to hearing from everyone else out there in the ether to share their their uh, opinions about box sets yeah definitely um yes indeed for, for, for those of you out there who have not joined the uh, love that album facebook page please do so it's uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album uh, you've obviously found a way to download the podcast because you're listening to us now, but I'll list to you all the ways so you can get it, uh, find us on iTunes, you can find us on lovethatalbum.blogspot.com, uh, you can get us through Stitcher Radio. Uh, so I think that's you know, all the ways that I know of that you can download the show. And uh, please tell your friends. Um, I'd love to get uh, you know, more people listening in and contributing to the page or, or sending us some feedback. If you want to send me an email, rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. love to have some more involvement. I'll talk in a minute about uh, changes coming up in the format of the show. Not every show, but what we're going to be doing. Um, but um, just very quickly, uh, Michael, uh, people who want to hear sitting in a bar in Adelaide, how do they do that, and uh, who have you got coming in the bar coming up very soon? Uh, AdelaideRockShow.Mevio.com, and if you do the Google thing on just about every any podcast um, site, it seems to come up. I actually just had a really great uh, interview with uh, with Wayne Nelson from the Little River Band. Ah, yes, yes. And he was just wonderful, and um, it was it was really interesting because he, he said I'm I'm the first guy that's actually shown any interest in talking to him from Australia in nearly 20 years. So because uh, as I think folks know, there's a you know 
big stink between the guys left in Australia and the guys in the States. But uh, they, they have a new album out called Cuts Like a Diamond, which is great. And, um, yeah, so fingers crossed that the 40th anniversary next year we might see the uh, the American band come out to Australia. And uh, wouldn't it be great to see Glenn Shorrock and Graham Goble and B. Birdles up on stage with them? But anyway. Yeah, um, I, I believe there's a lot of bad blood, though, isn't there? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Wayne Nelson said he's had death threats and everything. It's just oh, ridiculous, oh. like just yeah, crazy stuff. But just um, that's reminiscent. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but right. um, yeah, I've got a couple of new, uh, new Australian bands coming up soon. One one that I really love, some guys from Perth called Pink and White Bridge. There, this they, they remind me of Crosby, Stills and Natch or the band. This. The three-part harmonies of these guys is awesome. So oh, nice. I think that's the next one. So, yeah, okay. good stuff. I, I should just put in a, a mention. This is for an older episode of yours, Michael, or older two-part, I should say. But I was having a discussion uh, with uh, Tim, I think, about a week or two ago. And um, I, I asked him whether he was a fan of the tubes. And he said, yes, he was. So you should make mention that um, after much persistence on your part, you did a really excellent interview with Fee Wable. Uh, what would that be, about a year back or something? Yeah, it would be now, yeah. Yeah, and he, nice. you know, it's, it's funny, the guys that you think are going to be difficult to chat to, he was fantastic. I could have spoken to him for hours, and he, he just had the, all these great stories. Yeah, so... I think you'd, like, you'd ask you'd ask him one question, and then he'd, half an hour later, you'd have before you could get a word into <laughs> us. And the second question, he was Absolutely. very very talkative. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, um, Tim, search uh, search out sitting in a bar in Adelaide, the uh, Fee Wable. I think it's two. I'm definitely going to uh, find that soon. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely going to look for that. Great episode. Uh, and speaking of great episodes, uh, yourself and Eric recently hosted uh, an episode of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema covering the American Astronaut and Human Highway. So out there, if uh, you haven't downloaded that episode yet, uh, as um, one of our old uh, TV music commentators would say, do yourself a favour. Um, really is a very, very interesting episode. A lot of uh, uh, some, some sparring once we get to the hippie talk. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but don't don't get started on that again, guys. I want to get to bed before the before the rooster crows. Yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, and that's about just search for uh, GGTMC in uh, iTunes or go to GGTMC.com. I think it's what episode 252 or something like that. Yeah. Um, all right. So and as for episode 51 of Love That Album, now. Unfortunately, this is an episode that I did record a couple of weeks ago, but discovered the same problem with episode 50. Uh, so we're going to re-record this, and um, this is uh, featuring myself uh, and Juan Jose de la Cruz from the List Music Podcast, and uh, my good work friend Dave Blom for his first time on the program, and the uh, format is, well, we're going to be discussing two albums that are, well, one's a certified prog album and the other one, I guess we made a good case for it being sort of progish. We're going to be talking about uh, King Crimson's In the Court of the Crimson King. And nice! We're be, and we're going to be talking about the Flaming Lips, Yoshimi Battles, the Pink Robots. Now, last time around we had a very interesting discussion, and we're just going to do it all over again, but record it <laughs> properly. But um, I think we'll try see if we can add some new stuff to the mix. But it was we had a really, really fun time. I'll be uh, recording that 
very, very soon. And right. so basically the format of the show, up, up until now what we've been doing is talking song by song. And I, I think the show just sort of evolved into that. And I'm not planning on giving that format up because there are still some albums that I'd like to sort of go on a song-by-song basis. But there are some albums which either because I'm not as familiar with as others, and both of these albums... Well, well, In the Court of the Crimson King is an album I'm long familiar with, but Mm -hmm. Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots was not. That was uh, suggested by Dave Blom. So I thought rather than going song-by-song, we'd... You know, sort of like talk about the album in broad brush strokes, but you know, still refer to individual songs. So I, I guess a little bit like um, uh, "Dig Me Out," uh, where yeah. they're talking in broad brush strokes, but they're talking, you know, strictly about uh, '90s albums. So we'll be going all over the shop with this, but we'll be doing you know two albums, pretty much like some of the film shows that we know and love cover two films, broad brush strokes, uh, and just sort of see how we go with that and. Um, They'll, so they'll, it'll be on a show-by-show show basis. Some song, some shows will warrant the uh, the broad treatment, and some shows will go back to the song-by-song uh, song treatment. But the next uh, couple of shows, I won't sort of talk about show 52 just yet, except suffice to say that that will be uh, John Ross of Feed My Ears Facebook page fame and Tim Merrill. Uh, we'll be talking about a couple of albums, but we'll talk about that at the end of show 51. But for now, uh, episode 51 will be um, uh, King Crimson and Flaming Lips, so certainly looking forward to uh, re-recording that. Uh, but what I'm really looking forward to most is editing this little puppy and getting <laughs> it up online, because you know, once it's up, it's up! It's up, Jerry! Um, now, I- I'm-, I'm thinking rather than sort of you know putting the relevant music that we've been talking about, because I just want this show up, I'll probably be putting a whole lot of classical music up in the background just to be a little bit wacky, just to be a little bit different. You never know. So, um, anyway, but we've had, look, a really, really entertaining evening. I've just loved talking to you two, uh, you, you three guys, well, four, I guess, um, for the now asleep uh, John Sterrett. And um, thanks once so much for being a part of it. I look forward to... Uh, pursuing a whole lot more episodes both shooting the shit and uh, regular episodes with uh, you guys and actually I know I have I know I have an episode uh, coming up with you uh, Eric yeah this is really really bizarre because you've been doing you know these shooting the shits and you've been doing all these album I love segments but we've mm-hmm. never done a regular uh, love that album no nope, not together. yet so, so um, you you've come up with one suggestion and I've got to uh, come up with a, a good album to pair it off with so um, that's uh, still a couple of shows away, so we'll see how we go. But we'll uh, figure anyway. it out. All right, so thanks very much again, guys. Uh, really yeah. appreciate it. And Jeez, thanks for all you uh, people out there for listening to the show. Once again, please tell your friends, tell your music-loving friends um, that this show exists. Love to get a few more listeners. It'd be really, really nice. Right. The, uh, the, the uh, most downloaded episode. Um, is the Richard Clapton episode that we did, Michael, um, The Great Escape, which um, I don't know how this happened, but it's still reporting Richard's, eighteen Richard's, or 19,000 downloads. So, Richard's mum likes that one a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's all the people in the NSA that are like, oh, you got to listen to this. <laughs> so um, that, 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 I, I, I don't know. You, you don't think uh, that uh, listener spam bot has anything to do with it? I don't know. But Chinese anyway, military. Yeah, yeah, they, they they must be listening. Saying, "Who's this crazy Richard Clapton that they're talking about?" All right. Anyway, we'll um, be um, 
but catching you in three weeks time with episode 51 i love that album until then please support the shows that uh, uh that i mentioned frequently on the show you know the ones i'll, I'll do the roll of on the next time round. uh listen to some great records read some great books watch some great movies and just generally be nice to each other okay we'll see yeah. you next time cheers right, later night bye bye guys bye it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.